Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the last in the weekly installments of Down the Pub. Um, frankly, I just got back from Devon. I'm not really that bothered what's going on in this room tonight. Uh, there's been some renaming going on. Uh, we have. This all started because Kit Chapman's here and he renamed himself Science Bastard on the group chat. You are right, Kit? I'm all right. How are you? You started laying your colours out before we do this top ten then. Yeah, I'm a science bastard. That's that's my job. Okay, we have John the Redneck Bastard from Atlanta. You are right, John? Hanging in there from uh, Georgia, USA, COVID capital of the world. Come see us. <laughs> when Actually, I think I, we're still wrestling with Florida for that title right now. When do you think the likelihood is that anyone anywhere else in the world will accept an American through their borders again? Um, about the same time that uh, Donald Trump accepts anyone from anywhere else in the world over into our borders. <laughs> yeah, so maybe a while. We may yeah. be waiting. In fairness, if, if American foreign policy is anything to go by, they won't ask to be let in. <laughs> <laughs> so true that is the professional bastard the most master general you're right andy yeah i'm good i'm good what's this about a german with a kerry accent and you trying to book a holiday yeah i was i was um, in communication with a uh, a woman down in kerry who owns loads of like holiday cottages and i was trying to book a staycation i guess and uh it's an interesting accent of someone who's very obviously grew up in germany but then learned english in kerry Excellent. Uh, we've also got we've got a newcomer right at the very last today. Charlotte White is with us. Um, you may know her better as Restoration Cake on Twitter. So she is obviously Cake Bastard on, on, <laughs> on group chat today. Hi, Charlotte. We're so glad that you finally got on to hang out with us. I'm thrilled to be in the pub with you. I've got a nice glass of red. I'm ready to chat some shit and just hang out. And it goes without saying that because she professionally makes cake for a living, she's my new favourite. Uh, <laughs> if this was a contest today, she would win. And none of you are allowed yes. to be mean to her, ever. Amazing. Did... Does that mean that my pick gets to win automatically? Because yeah. I have extra sway. Yeah. Because you've promised me a salted caramel-based cake concoction at some point. Definitely. When we do the real-life pub meet, there will be cake. Yeah. Definitely. Beth is back. Beth is yam yam bastard. You're right. I now know what this means. Yeah. Do I need to explain it just for those <laughs> who do, do not? Yeah. I think <laughs> so. Yam yam is a, depending on where you are from, because James 
it's a derogatory term, but for where I am, it's a lovable term for people who are from the black country, which is uh, not Birmingham. Um, Thank it's you. Short for, uh, it comes from one of the phrases that's said, which is not you are in the black country, you say yow am. So it <laughs> comes down to how you am doing, uh, yeah. how am doing like Chuck. <laughs> I love it. Johnny dies in the house, cheese bastard. Evening. What was dinner again? Uh, a couple of uh, beef sirloins, a bit of salad and a few roast potatoes. Very nice it was. Like you do. Lockie caught on very quick after getting here late and has just named himself Big Bastard. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking too hard before. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Who else is in the room that I haven't done? Who's the real history bastard? <laughs> That's me. Is that you? <laughs> Yeah, because I'm an archaeologist, and the running joke among archaeologists is that archaeology is the study of real history because we're getting to the truth with physical evidence, whereas history is usually written by um, the higher ups or the uh, the victors, so to speak. So it's a running joke. I mean, you say real evidence, but when you get to prehistory, every like time team I've ever seen, when they don't find anything. At the end of the third day, they're always pretending they've found a scraper, which is a tiny little bit of flint that just happens to be in a field. To be fair, I do have a scraper in my room somewhere. To be fair, if they don't find a scraper, they'll usually just draw a picture of what it might have looked like. (laughs) (laughs) Or it just seems to be the uh, never-ending quest for a pointy bit of rock that they say didn't get to be pointy without someone making it so, and then the cartoons start about what the pointy bit of rock might have been for. (laughs) <laughs> to be fair, I've I've drank with Phil Harding, so yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> I want him on the podcast so badly. I, I bumped into uh, him at Tynecott once, actually. Oh, really? Yeah, he likes his battlefields. Apparently, he, look, he looks like a lovely man, but his hat looks like it stinks. That's what I always think. <laughs> oh, he always wears it. It's so funny. Yeah. Okay, so he clearly won't be coming on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, you haven't given yourself a nickname. Oh, so mine is White Supremacist Churchill Bastard, obviously. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I don't really do nicknames. I mean, I've got scratchings hanging up behind me. I could call myself Mr. Scratchings for the duration, if anybody... Can you just be Northern Bastard? Well, I can, but I'm... Yeah, all right then. I mean, I'm sort of Midlands, but I was born no, in Midlands. Say, he's not a Northerner. I yeah, don't he know. is. Watford. <laughs> but, but, you know, well, I, was, I was born in Manchester, but then like, Johnny then surprises everyone by telling everyone who's born in Liverpool, so he sort of wins as well. Oh, his secret is out. Right, okay. Have I introduced everyone? No. No, oh, just because you haven't got a nickname and because you're eating your dinner. What is for dinner tonight, Clyde? It, it was very nice. It was Waitrose Thai chicken curry. Very pleasant. Uh, have you eaten it already? Yeah. You've done it in like five mouthfuls. Yeah. I sucked <laughs> it up. I was starving. Okay. It's a big, big hungry boy. Big yeah. Hungry boy. Can you this is being out all day not feeding me. It's terrible. Oh, well, you are cycling, bastard. Hmm. Okay. Oh, thank you. <laughs> right. Okay, so today, just as soon as I finished adding up the last of the votes, we are going to announce what order the top 10 greatest Britons finished in. But in true History Hack style, because this is the last in our weekly shows, I thought we'd go like full on. And just because we are talking about the greatest Britain ever, which could be construed as pretentious, we are also going to discuss some of the biggest twats in British history. Um. And there was quite a bun fight over Cromwell, I can tell you, to which I've just said anyone who wants him can do him because he deserves all the, all the grief he gets, basically. 
who should we start with? Who's going to give us a rundown first? Let's go. Do you know what, Clive? You are so excited. You oh, so good. Excited. Great stuff. Go on. Let, let's go. go then. Because I, I mean, we might as well start at the top and then the rest of you can follow with the minor bastards because the person I have chosen chosen is without doubt the biggest bastard in British history. No question, nothing will be accepted. Because if you think about it, British history is largely about bloody kings and queens. It really is a little bit dull in many respects. So king this, queen that, all of that nonsense. And the worst king of the lot was none other than Henry VIII. He was the most odious, nasty, vicious, tyrannical twerp that history has given us. And therefore he should win in every single way. That man was just odious, absolutely foul. Everything he did was wrong. He's reputed to have killed around 72,000 people in executions during his reign which would equate to 2% of the population, slightly more of that. If you put that into modern day terms, that would make him a bigger bastard than Pol Pot straight away. It would be over a million people killed by him. Okay, he didn't kill as many people as Victoria starved in the Irish famine or Churchill killed in India, but he was dealing with a small country in times when he was in charge. He was the first person who set out this concept of the divine right of kings. What a twatish thing that is. Can you imagine anyone so egocentric just to say, God's put me here to be your king and I can control your life and I can kill you at will. He started out taking over from his father, who actually had done quite a lot. He had managed to get the country into shape after years of civil war. Henry VII died, leaving a surplus in the royal exchequer. So what does Henry VIII do? He comes in and he executes all of Henry VII's main advisors and takes over and brings in some of his own people. He actually did quite well with some of his choice of advisor. People like Cardinal Wolsey wasn't a bad chap and had some vision. So what does Henry do? He tops him as well. He brings in Thomas Cromwell, maybe an odious twerp, maybe not an odious twerp, but clearly a clever twerp. What does Henry do? He tops him as well. All the way along, he's just hacking away at people's heads, all for his own miserable self-entitlement. He inherited a kingdom which was in surplus. He ransacked the kingdom, took in lots of money and spent it all and spent more besides. When he left, the country was just about bankrupt. It was heavily in debt. He took the monasteries and took all the wealth of the monasteries and splashed it all up the wall, as um, Boris Johnson might say. It's like taking, I don't know, if you, in the, if, can you imagine a circumstance where you took all of the North Sea oil and all of the nationalized industries and you just take all of those assets and throw them, fritter them away within a short period of time? Well, that's what Henry did with the monasteries. All that wealth and money, got it in, 
and spent it just like that. And if you think what the monks, there was a lot wrong with the monastic system. There was a lot wrong with the Catholic Church at that time, which is why they had a Catholic Reformation shortly afterwards. But what they did do was some good as well. The mon monastic system provided basically a safety net for the population. It was the closest we came at those times to a welfare state and a health service. And what did he do? He destroyed the bloody lot. He did worse than that even. He appointed himself King of Ireland. Now, what a stupid thing to do when you're not even Irish and you've probably never even been there. He annexed Wales, the first step in British imperialism. He went to war. He was the only British king ever to rule part of Belgium. And then he gave it away. He took Boulogne. It was his one achievement mil militarily. He took Boulogne. Big bloody deal. It cost a million pounds in those days to hold on to Boulogne. And then eventually it was given away after Henry had died. The only real military success he had was the Battle of Flodden against the Scots. But blow me down, he wasn't even in the country at the time. He was off in a jaunt in France. It was his missus, Catherine of Aragon, who sorted that one out. Everything he did was just odious and wrong. He was, I mean, just a foul, foul person. His medical history is really quite revolting. In, in 1513, he had smallpox. In 1521, he had malaria. In 1524, he injured himself in a jousting accident. In 1525, he almost drowned. In 1527, he hurt his foot playing real tennis. In 1527 to 28, he got confined to bed with a sore leg, believed to be a varicose ulcer on the left leg caused by a constrictive tartar. What a twerp. 1528, another bout of malaria. 1536, injured while jousting. That was the big one. 1537, evidence of ulcers now on both legs. 1538, one of the fistulas closed up on one leg. And for 10 to 12 days, the humours, which had no outlet, were like, like to have stifled him. Blah, blah, blah. All very nasty. Easter 39, he creeps across the door of the chapel royal, doubtless in agony from the pains in his legs. 1539, he suffered from acute constipation. The guy was full of shit. Fe um, 1541, another se severe infection on his legs. 1541, even more goes wrong. 1544, ulcers flare up. 1545, he couldn't even write anymore. 1546, he had to be carried onto his horse and carried around in sedan chairs. And then he went and popped his clogs eventually. He was just revolting. He's probably had syphilis most of his life, or if he didn't have syphilis, he had Cushing syndrome. It was just, there is nothing, nothing charming or nice about him. People talk about him as a charismatic, good-looking youth. He was an odious, selfish work. By the time he died, he was even fatter than me. He was 400 pounds. And blimey, I would have to eat a lot of Waitrose's Thai green curry to get that fat. No, Henry VIII was just quite simply the biggest Burt out there. There is nothing to commend him, but no one else can come close to him in his absolute bastardness. And even his kids were three really screwed up people who really went on to achieve 
not a great deal at all either, no doubt due to the fact that he was such an abusive father. He abused his wives, he abused himself, and he is the lowest of the low in British history. Thank you. You finished? I think so. I could have gone on for another hour or two. I don't I like it. You only chucked in at the end the fact that he was not very nice to his wife. So he was. Yeah, well, that's the right stuff that everybody knows about. the first about. one who he'd been married to for nigh on three decades and then suddenly mm. told her, actually, we've not been married at all. Second one, he cut, mm. his head, cut her head off. Third one, probably that would have been the last one. Uh, fourth one, he had the cheek to tell her she was minging. The fifth one, at that point, he's in his mid-40s and on his way to £400, and she was 18. Um, and unsurprisingly, went and found other people that were less grotesque to keep herself amused with and ended up getting beheaded. And the sixth one, very narrowly escaped without being beheaded as well, um, but hmm. outwitted him in the end. Uh, I mean, as I, as I said on the group chat the other day, he sort of just goes from like a spoiled man-child straight into a midlife crisis. There's nothing in between, you know. <laughs> and if you look at the big, you know, if you look at the, his his contribution to the Reformation, in other countries it was driven by, you know, proper philosophical debate and interrogation. Him, it was just who he wanted to, who he wanted to shag next, basically, and it made it more convenient for him, really. And everything was about succession, but when push came to shove, he actually left the country in a pretty poor state with a child taking, a sickly child taking over, and then a dispute. He also kicked off the, war, the, British, the English Wars of Religion, which lasted for about 250 years afterwards, thanks to his, his burkery. I mean, you did mention that we didn't, you did, we didn't hold on to Boulogne, but having been there a couple of times, I can see why that was. I went there once and it was almost like I arrived just after the town dog shit festival had finished. There was dog shit <laughs> everywhere, as far as the eye could see. We're like, you know, one metre, one metre, one metre. Astonishing. I, li I liked his whole idea that the Pope might actually give him time of day. I mean, what? He's going he's gonna to try and negotiate from a position of strength, of strength from that far corner of Europe. And who's he trying to piss off? Well, the daughter of the King of Spain, probably the most powerful man in the world, whose cousin was the Holy Roman Emperor, and the Holy Roman Empire had sacked Rome and done horrible things to the previous Pope, not people to piss off. But yeah, I'm sure the Pope will listen to me over those two guys. But he's also the only person who could achieve the distinction of having the Pope slagging him off and Martin Luther slagging him off. That's a pretty good combination. He was sort of a Farage, really, wasn't he? <laughs> you know, he yeah, was that's good way of negotiating <laughs> positions in Europe. Yeah, I think yeah so. to, be, to be fair, <laughs> he's sort Farage. of a cross between Farage and Boris in that he's more like Farage, but like Boris, he has God knows how many kids by God knows how many women that is it, we just don't it, know the final count. We, we don't know as well. I think it's fair to say we don't know if Farage has actually beheaded a wife at any point. <laughs> yeah. no, true. I mean, the thing with Henry VIII was the sort of startling rapidity of it. It was like, I mean, don't quote me on this, but Anne Boleyn's head's like not even cold, and he's marrying um, Jane Seymour, I think less than a week later. And it doesn't take him long after that to hook up with Anne of Cleves, and he hasn't even got rid of her or decided how he's going to divorce her before he's sniffing around Catherine Howard. And I think she was about 17 when he killed her. So, I mean, he married her when the age gap was, let's just say now, it would be highly inappropriate. And it wasn't particularly appropriate then. He was a psychopath. He was an absolute was psychopath. Prince Andrew Jeffrey, territory. Jeffrey right? Epstein of royalty. 
<laughs> How long did it take you guys to go there? Allegedly. <laughs> you know, ironically, though, that's just like Dr. Zeus. I mean, he started dating a really young woman while his wife was dying of cancer for so many years. And then she topped herself, probably because she found out about the affair. And like she didn't reveal the affair in her suicide note, but she hinted at it. And then less than, I think it was a week later, he was marrying the woman he was seeing. Nice. It was just like... The places you'll go, eh? Cool. Yeah, Dr. Zeus. Yeah. Yeah. The the children's writer who originally wanted to write erotic pornography books. Right, like fucks and socks. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we segue away from Henry Gates now, but I really want to know. What is this about him writing pornography? Oh, um yeah, Dr. Zeus. He originally well, he wasn't a doctor anyway but he originally wanted to write like erotic pornography books, like the adult erotica books. But he tried and people didn't like his illustrations in them. So yeah, try and imagine <laughs> cat in the hat illustrations <laughs> in erotic pornography and you get the idea. So then it was a great idea to go into children's books. Green and then, cat in the hat does that. Yeah, and then while his <laughs> wife's dying of cancer or she's really unwell, he starts dating this younger woman and... Basically, his wife tops himself because she finds out. Um, Imagine the publisher. They're like, oh, yeah, that porn guy. He wants to write some books for children. And they're like, yeah, great. some books published. I remember looking and seeing it while researching History's Biggest Twat. And I was looking. I was like, oh, my God, he actually does have books in it. (laughs) He should have hooked up with Walt Disney. Did his porn rhyme as well? Was it like, I do like doing it in a house? I had no idea. I did not decide to look further. But it does explain Green Ham. I've always wondered about Green Ham. Oh, <laughs> it really doesn't. I yeah, and poor God, it was the eggs that were green, not the ham. Oh, sorry. Yeah, come right. on. Yeah, that one in the, the sequel, Horton Hears a Ho. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I should have gone incognito before I Googled Dr. Zeus porn. Uh, I'm going to have to tell you that one. I, with, with, the, with Walt Disney's uh, fetish for Norman uh, looks for like he's going to be sick. <laughs> this could have they, they could have made a great team. Oh dear. Right. Okay. Any more comments on Henry the Eight? We need. We need. A, we need a Seuss porn hashtag on Twitter. After. <laughs> <laughs> right. I am. Right. I'm going to reveal who's finished tenth and ninth in the Greatest Britain poll. Doctor Zeus. <laughs> In 10th place was the unknown soldier. Jesus, why do I bother? Do you know <laughs> one knew his name? <laughs> so if we called him Dave, he would have done better, would he? We suffered from a lack of photo, to be honest, I think. No, do you know what? I think that's a really respectable showing for the unknown soldier. I do. I think, I'd... let me, uh... hang on. Given how many nominations there were, that, that's pretty good going. Yeah, I mean, there were yeah. over 300 nominations in all. Let me just bring up the 2002 poll. The Unknown Soldier finished 76th in 2002. Wow. Oh, okay. So, yeah, has done really well. And he was only one place ahead of Robbie Williams in that one. Oh, and behind Bob Geldof. So you've done him proud. <laughs> You're telling me I'll be gutted to find out if Howard Donald's come from nowhere and finished ninth in this. <laughs> <laughs> no, he has not. And the lo- the next person, the ninth place, finished twenty fourth in two thousand and two, and it is the highest ranking woman. So Her Majesty the Queen has finished ninth. 
in this year's poll. So that's numbers 10 and number nine. So Alina isn't here um, to complain about her advocate um, not getting any further, but the rest of you are still in the game. So we'll carry on going with that. But for now, let's have another twat. Let's do... <sighs> Kit, I, love, I just love the tagline on yours. <laughs> okay, so my twat was a contemporary of Oliver Cromwell is a namesake of Katie Hopkins and yet is somehow worse than both of them. I am talking of Matthew Hopkins, the witch finder general. And before I, be before I begin properly, uh, let's just deal with that title. Like everything else Hopkins did, he just made it up himself. There is no such thing as a witch finder general. He never had any authority to hunt witches. It was just an excuse to exploit a war-torn country and uh, filled with religious fear for profit. He didn't care that in little over a year, he caused the deaths of 300 innocent women. So 1644 England was in the middle of the civil wars and puritanical religious fervor had resulted in all kinds of odd kid names. Uh, this is true. Uh, Praise God for if Jesus Christ had not died for thy sins, thou wouldst be damned bare bones was a real name of that time. Um, and around this time, everyone in East Anglia believed in witchcraft, usually blaming things such as crops dying or illness on old It'll women. do a bit. <laughs> or, bizarrely, the Finnish, because it was a Finland tradition that all people from Finland were wizards. I don't know <laughs> if that still holds to this day, but there you go. Um, about 10 years earlier, uh, thanks to a brilliant scientist called William Harvey, English law had started to require that you couldn't just kill a witch out of hand. You actually had to have proof that she was a witch. And obviously, as the devil wasn't going to confess on anyone's behalf, the witch had to be made to confess. Uh, with the war raging, with courts backlogged through the wazoo, and people not getting due process from proper judges, rather than they were dealing, being dealt with by justices of the peace, Hopkins spotted a loophole. Uh, and so he joined with a man called John Stern, known as the Witch Pricker, and they began careers charging locals to find evidence uh, against witches. They created a false culture of fear, and then they exploited it. They were war profiteers, they were con artists. Hopkins does tell it differently. According to his autobiography, The Discovery of Witches, uh, he started his career in March 1644 when he overheard three women talk about how they were gonna do some spells because, you know, witches be crazy. But there we go. Uh, we know very little about Hopkins before he actually began his career. Uh, his father was a clergyman, but we have no idea when he was actually born. Although most people associate him with Vincent Price because of the Hammer horror movie, The Witchfinder General, he was actually only in his mid-twenties when he died. One thing we do know is that he read books written by King James I uh, of England, um, sixth of Scotland. Now, for those of you who don't know, uh, James wrote several books, three of which uh, went to, into major publication. One was an anti-smoking pamphlet about the dangers of tobacco called A Counterblast to Tobacco. Everyone thought that was stupid and ignored it. The other two, News from Scotland and Demonology, were all about hunting witches and everyone bought it. Uh, Hopkins took some of the techniques mentioned and adopted them for his own purpose but he gave him his own Hopkins twist because he was a twat. Now Hopkins and Stern soon get their first big score. On their evidence, 29 women at Chelmsford are accused of witchcraft. Four of them die in prison. 
Nine are reprieved and the rest of them are hanged in July 1645. Uh, witches in England were very, very rarely burned at the stake. Now, Hopkins and Stern think this earns them some good money, so they start travelling around East Anglia, charging towns expenses and claiming to be official Parliament agents. They make about £23 for a visit. That's about £4,000 in today's money. It was so expensive that Ipswich had to create a special tax to pay Hopkins. Eventually, they would get the locals to name some old woman, and then they would start torturing her to get evidence so she could be tried as a witch. Soon, women were being arrested ahead of time in the hope that Hopkins would stop by. And here are some of Hopkins' tests. There was witch pricking, which was basically stabbing the old woman with needles in the belief she wouldn't feel pain if she were a witch. So if you kept stabbing and stabbing and stabbing and eventually went, you know what, I'm not even feeling it, you're guilty of witchcraft. There was swimming, which was throwing a woman into a pond. Uh, if she drowned, she was innocent. If she swam and floated, she was a witch. Although, in fairness to Hopkins, he did specify that you needed the witch's permission to do swimming. Uh, there was looking for the devil's mark, which was the secret teat that the supposed devil sucked upon. Uh, this usually involved shaving his victims of all body hair. It was barbaric and inhumane. Of course, people very quickly worked out that this was a confidence trick. Uh, he was charging ridiculous high expenses and basically killing people for money. Um, John Gall, a vicar in St. Neots uh, in Huntingdonshire, began preaching against him. And in Norfolk, he was questioned by justices on the of the peace on his techniques and fees. And they decided there was, this was all utterly pointless torture and told him to stop it. Hopkins' career lasted 14 months. During that time, he killed at least 300 innocent women or led to their deaths and accounted for about 60% of all witch trials in English history. And here's the real kicker. He got away with it. In 1647, he died of tuberculosis shortly after completing his autobiography. He was not, contrary to popular belief, tried as a witch himself. And the problem is that autobiography, because it meant his legacy lingered on. This sold well, and it was taken to America, where his ideas were used to start the witch hunts there too, most famously in the Salem witch trials. So John Hopkins, a complete twat who basically murdered women for money. I just, I can't even, do you think it's because women wouldn't sleep with him? <laughs> I mean, that, that's... A... His mother didn't love him enough, or... Well, well this is the thing, we know, we know basically bugger all about him. But um, he's, so he's from Ipswich. He, no, he's from um, he was she was from Essex, um, I think. Um, I need to double check. He's, he's from a very small village, uh, but we we know very little. I say apart from the fact that his dad was a vicar, and uh, we don't even know the year he was born. I mean, if uh, the women in Essex wouldn't sleep with him, then that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. His first, his first big school was the was the Manning Tree uh, witches, um, supposedly. Uh, but East Anglia has a, uh, a really strong sort of tradition of these idea of witches. There was a woman... Uh, Lockie's in... grinning because Lockie is from East Anglia. Which is <laughs> me too. Me too. <laughs> a place called um, Longstanton just outside Cambridgeshire. Um, at about the same time, there was apparently an old woman who could make your horse stop in the road. And she would stand there and sort of bewitch any horse. So the horse would freeze. Um, and then pay, you'd have to pay her to get the horse moving again. Um, about uh, a bit earlier, there was also the, something called the Witches of War Boys, which is best I can tell, basically these kids tortured their babysitter. 
And then on the, on the basis that she once spoke to someone who died two years later, they found her guilty of witchcraft. Um, it's all know. kinds of crazy. <laughs> it's a fair call. Yeah, I'm actually from the next village along from Warboys out in the, out in the Fens. And um, I looked into that because obviously it's, it's local history. It was really interesting. And they actually think that the children might have been poisoned by um, a bacteria or a fungus that grows on rye and barley called mm. ergot, which is where they synthesized LSD from. So it explains those kind of, you know, thinking that you're being attacked, you know, they're getting the fear, they're getting hallucinations and stuff. So they think there might have actually been some grounding in what the children were experiencing. But of course, you know, popular prejudice and misogyny means go after the little old lady. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite sort of witch stories is, uh, is from um, uh, our, our King's Lynn. I was trying to remember the name of the place in Norfolk. And they, there they apparently did burn a, a witch at the stake and her heart leapt out of her body and smashed into one of the nearby buildings. And they've actually left a little symbol where the heart supposedly splattered before it escaped into the river. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Which sounds perfectly plausible. I mean, to be fair, guys, this guy does sound like a complete twat. I think we're being slightly harsh on the names that they chose for them, though, to, for themselves, though, because, you know... When me and Johnny venture into the fish market in Ypres, he does make, make us use the nicknames the, the Bitch Finder General and the Bitch Picker when we're out and about. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, Johnny. I've got to get the t-shirts out for the summer. Clive <laughs> has put in the group chat, you forgot to mention that Henry VIII is responsible for the first bit of uh, homophobic legislature, legislature in Britain. The 1533 Buggery Act. I always I thought a Buggery Act was something completely different, not a piece of legislation. But hey, <laughs> <laughs> you did go to Bosch school, Clive. Yeah. I'm surprised no one's wondering about the Finnish people and where that came into yeah, it. Yeah, please, let's, that is, let's um... just examine this. All Finnish people are wizards. No, yes. I have a good explanation for that, actually, because of the Sami people, um, which were across all of Scandinavia at the time. But even when Christianity started to take hold, the Sami were known for their the healing, their natural abilities, because like, they were so in tune with nature and everything. And even during the Christian periods, people in Scandinavia used to go to the Sami for a variety of reasons. And the right. Sami were quite heavy in Finland, population-wise, even though they were more nomadic. So, so that's probably where it comes from. Is that they weren't real wizards with pointy hats and capes. And let's not forget it's a certain not, man who wears a red costume lives in, in Finland, in Lapland, so... True, true. <laughs> if he isn't fucking dodgy, <laughs> I don't think <laughs> My favourite story from, from that, there is, there is a, uh, many pamphlets about sort of wizardry, but one of, the, uh, one of the pamphlets blames this attack on two Finns. And supposedly this guy was in the pub for about six hours with his mates and then decided he was going off to market. And he vanishes. And two days later, they find him um, badly injured in a hedgerow 20 miles in the opposite direction. And rather than saying, you know, I got pissed, I took the wrong road and I fell off my horse. um, He insists that he was on the right road and two fins appeared out of nowhere and cast a spell that made him fly 40 miles in the opposite direction. You can imagine Dominic Cummings having great fun making up stories like that. (laughs) Most people didn't travel. Most people didn't travel and they wouldn't be aware of people that have travelled. But the fact that everyone in sort of East Anglia can identify a Finn and a Finnish accent straight away. (laughs) (laughs) 
It probably was Leningrad Cowboys. Right. Mark it's, wor here. it's worth watching. It's worth watching the film The Witchfinder General if you haven't, because it's exceptionally good. Okay. Do we have another one of our top ten? Yeah. Okay. So number hmm. ten was the Unknown Soldier. Number nine was Elizabeth II, and our number eight, Lockie, it was your dude, Charles. Oh, well, still, I'd, I'd have rather been arguing for Attenborough anyway, but yeah, um, but, but but I'll still, I'll, I'll take eight. That's all right. No, he's fallen. He was fourth in 2002. Man. And so people who were in the top 10 in 2002 who aren't this time, Brunel is 11th, actually, so he's dropped from second to 11th. Diana, Princess of Wales, is nowhere, like 94th or something. Um, she was third. And Isaac Newton was 12th, wasn't he? He was just outside. And happily, because there is no place for either of these two in the top 10. In 2002, John Lennon was number eight. Oh. Fuck that. And 10 was Oliver Cromwell. Fuck that even more. Um, <laughs> they're somewhere else now in the top 100. Um, nowhere in sight which I'm sorry, but I'm just going to lay this out there. The Beatles are the most overrated band in the history of the world. <laughs> Even more so than Queen, you bastard, Dyer. <laughs> <laughs> They'd struggle with that. Um, I don't know if you know, but you have a soulmate in this room in the shape of Charlotte and Bo. Uh, right, okay. Excellent work. <laughs> Let's move on and have another bastard. Let's go to Redneck Bastard and find out who he picked from the other side of the pond. You know, I wanted to start off, uh, like, like last time, uh, figuring out what makes a twat a twat. Uh, Clive tells us that with Henry, his body count may be slower than, or maybe lower than, uh, say, uh, uh, Winston Churchill or, or others, but he had less to work with. It was a smaller country at the time. So what we've started, uh, the road we've started going down is the failure rate. If you got a smaller group, then you're less accountable for a miserable fuck up. And so I'd, I'd like to start off with someone who can boast a 0.9999375 failure rate, an almost perfect record of destroying everybody who relied upon him. Uh, I first found out about him in a book that uh, my sister Allegra gave me one time called On the Psychology of Military Incompetence. And uh, while Britain can boast uh, quite a number of, uh, of people who fall into that category and have, have gotten many uh, killed, the one who I think takes the cake and uh, is, is probably a good candidate for uh, a biggest twat is uh, Major General Sir William Elphinstone. Uh, to, to find out about him, we have to go back to January of 1842. Uh, Sir William was uh, a 60-year-old who had uh, been put in charge of the British, uh, British occupation of Kabul, Afghanistan. Uh, and, and he sort of set the framework that would be, uh, that would be followed by the Russians, by the Americans, uh, for generations to come. So he was a groundbreaker in, in some ways. Uh, the British, of course, set up shop in, in Kabul in 1839. Uh, they, for a while, it seemed to work pretty well. The idea was to keep the Russians out of northern India. Uh, but eventually, they began to uh, cut their budget for bribes, lost control of the area, and uh, they put uh, what, a, what a contemporary called the most incompetent soldier ever to have become a general, 
in charge of the garrison. The situation began to fall apart under uh, uh, William Elphinstone, General Elphinstone's uh, command. In uh, late 1841, uh, his chief diplomat was invited to negotiate uh, uh, a better terms with the local Afghan warlords. He showed up for tea and was promptly pulled off his horse with his bodyguard and cut to pieces. His body was dragged through the streets of Kabul. Uh, nonetheless, General Elphinstone did nothing uh, as, the, um, as the situation deteriorated around him. Uh, he eventually realized he could not hold the uh, Kabul any longer. He negotiated a safe passage to Jalalabad, uh, not really thinking of the example of uh, his chief diplomat, uh, that when you negotiate with an Afghan warlord, you have to take uh, what they say with a pinch of salt at times. Uh, he, he pulled out of Kabul on January the 6th. On the first day, he found out that he had no escort to uh, give him safe passage. He had no food, no fuel, and he would be making his way through the Hindu Kush in uh, January. On day two, uh, his forces were depleted and snipers from the Afghans around them began picking off his force, which began with approximately 16,000 troops. Um, he lost his artillery. He began losing more and more men. On day three, his force entered a four-mile pass. They were shot to pieces and cut to pieces. Uh, he, was, he had lost about 3,000 soldiers that day, many of whom committed suicide rather than continue under the uh, ill-fated command of their general. Day four, his native soldiers deserted him. Uh, Elphinstone simply stopped giving orders and appeared to have lost all uh, uh, command of the situation. By day five, he had but 200 men left. Uh, he was invited to negotiate uh, with uh, a further safe passage back to India by the local warlords. And again, not taking the example of his uh, chief diplomat, he showed up and uh, was promptly captured. He essentially left his force that started out with 16,000 total, uh, completely leaderless. The, uh, about the only cohesion left was with the 44th uh, Regiment of Foot. Uh, which uh, eventually uh, began mutinying against their officers. Uh, they, essentially, the whole group was lost, with the exception of one surgeon who managed to limp back into, uh, into safety uh, with uh, a sore wound to his head on a borrowed horse. So, uh, but for the survival of that one person, uh, General Elphinstone would have had a perfect record. And while and this is going to come as a shock to many of our listeners. I'm not actually British. I've just been cleverly portraying myself as one so far. So the, <laughs> the nuances of the word twat don't necessarily reach the American mind as well as they might. I think for looking at from a perspective of competence and from the uh, ability to wipe out everyone who depends upon you for leadership, he comes close to perfection. So I'm offering one of your esteemed generals, Major General Sir William Elphinstone, as uh, Britain's biggest twat. Excellent. <laughs> it does sound like a complete fucking tool. Anyway, Marcus, this is, so Marcus has named himself Red Chino Bastard. Are you actually wearing Red Chinos now? Oh, I know, but I do have a lot of Red Chinos. Probably <laughs> so. False <laughs> <laughs> <Both> advertising. <laughs> Aging Clive O'Connell. <laughs> Clive has called himself self-made bastard now. Marcus, is Elphinstone in your wheelhouse? 
or a different he's, he's definitely going to be up there uh, as one of the most incompetent of British generals. But that's a, that's a tough category of incompetent British generals. But I think, given that given the the subject of tonight, we could have given John a brief lesson in pronouncing twat properly. To be honest, he sounds like he. Um, he went learned... all British. All right, go on, go on then, Holmes. Teach him. Well, uh, well I mean, it just sounds like he's learned it from a, a Lloyd Grossman guide to British swearing at the moment which is obviously, obviously it's twat as everybody knows and the correct way of pronouncing things is the northern way so it's twat as in <laughs> and grass and a bath and everything else we're all in agreement yes. with this aren't we y- yeah no that's unfair to our colonial cousins because in South Africa and America the word they use is twat although they use it less frequently than we use twat <laughs> do we need to actually tell everyone what a twat is who can describe it in the most amusing way? When I was at school, everyone used to say it was a pregnant goldfish, but I don't know if there's a, if that is actually true. No, it's a lady garden, isn't it, Charlotte? It, uh, why, I don't know why I'm asking here, but yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, do, do you think the other so. person in the room apart from Beth who has one? There's two slang terms for it. The first is... The best way to describe it is one is stupid or obnoxious, and the other is obviously a woman's genitalia. <laughs> but see, this is where this is where our our, uh, our our examples are starting to break down because so far they've been dominated by men, and so the American mind doesn't always wrap itself around British slang as well as it could. For instance, over here, if you were to say. I got on the elevator this morning and got into an argument with a complete bastard, then you would probably be talking about a male antagonist. If Mm. you said, on the other hand, I got honked at on the way to work by a total bitch, then in general, and it's not a hard, fast rule, but you would probably be referring to a difficult female antagonist. Um, (laughs) And so it was unclear to me going into this if we would, if the, the default for twat is some a male who embodies twattishness, or if you if it were a female to engage in twattery, would that be a twattess, a twattet, or a twattu, <laughs> perhaps, depending on your Latin suffix? I think, I think you're thinking too hard. Twats, can't you? You are overanalyzing yeah. this. I think it's I think it's sound ap- academic work to want to define your terms, but I think you might be thinking too hard. <laughs> <laughs> That would be Although, the first time I've, I've been accused of that. <laughs> that said, guys, um, all of this positive discrimination, they are all men so far. If you'd have had to go for a woman, who would you have gone for? Elizabeth the first. first. <laughs> <laughs> Clive's definitive. Kit? Yeah, Mary the first, without question. Oh, yeah, she was a bit... She was a, yeah, oh, she actually, was, uh, actually, you know what? No. I, go for, I go for Empress Matilda for the uh, anarchy. Okay. Marcus? I've already said mine online and I got slated. Um, I, I said uh, Countess Constance. Anyone who shoots policemen in the face is a, a bit of a trap. But, uh... <laughs> Fair assessment. Sloppy? <laughs> um, I don't know. I, don't, I think Victoria, more of a twat than Elizabeth. Um... Oh, I don't know. Not so much twat as just a permanent... Ignorance. No. Like, just... Oh, aloofness. Sorry. No, I just think there's something about her that was never going to be right because she was raised in such bizarre circumstances. I think that that lands her in twat category, though. 
I don't know, when you read all of her letters from the last 10 years and you've held her diaries and she's all like about her grandkids and stuff. I mean, yeah, she has her twattish moments, most definitely. But I don't think she is will. twat. Yeah. Are you, are you just saying that to stay in the Royal Family's good books? Yeah, if you lot get me banned from the Royal Archives. <laughs> <laughs> Maggie Thatcher, maybe? Oh, yeah. Wow. Good choice. Unity Mitford, obviously. You need to put your Ben Elton suit on and go a little bit of politics for that. <laughs> I don't know I just would I say oh, I was thinking like Wallace Simpson and I thought no because she wasn't really a, a, she was hapless and silly with what she got herself into but does that that make her a twat she tried American. to get out of that numerous times yeah she's not what I'd call one um, Unity Mitford she tried to pull Hitler and then um, <laughs> and kill herself in the end what about Nancy Astor? She a twat. Yeah, that's a good choice. Yeah, I think she, she not 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 yeah not a fan of the Jews. Uh, not a fan of booze either. And, and generally speaking, if you don't like alcohol, I think you've got something to hide. But um, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. <Yeah. laughs> it's medical, I swear. <laughs> no, I like that one, Nancy Astor. Have a think more on that about women, so that we can even up the score. And I suppose ethnic minorities as well, because everybody complained that it was all mostly white men in the top ten. So we wouldn't want it to be only uh, white men in the top ten twats either, would we? But then I think if we're talking British twats, then there's a lot more white candidates to choose from. So the yeah. probability, the chances are that the top ten will all be white. I imagine. And does the black Does the Black Prince count? <laughs> Probably on Twitter. <laughs> Sound <laughs> lateral <laughs> thinking. I like it. On Twitter, you could get that through with no problem. It would have like <laughs> it would be trending before anyone sought to point out the error. Um, that was who was it? Because um, we didn't cover this. One of you was looking at the top ten greatest Britons if you went by pub names. That's oh, that was me. Yeah, yeah we end up with because we had this laugh in the Royal Archives that um, you know Queen Victoria was slightly obsessed that all of her heirs be named either Victoria or Albert so that their names would reign in in perpetuity and then of course as soon as she's dead no one listens uh, and that actually all that happened was all the pubs ended up named after Prince Albert instead of actual royals even Prince Albert changed his name to George to be George the Sixth. So well, who are the others on the pub list? Prince Albert must be there. There's loads of those pubs. So the most common is George by a long, long stretch. Like the Royal George or whatever. Like Royal George. Um, Prince of Wales is also right up there. Um, uh, number, number two, Kit? Uh, number two, Duke of Wellington. Um, <laughs> like all the Iron Just, <laughs> Wellington's, Duke of Wellington's and Iron Dukes. He comes right up yeah, there. Yeah, Duke's hair, Duke's uh, Robin Hood uh, in, a, in at five. Um, and then we've got Albert, uh, John Talbot, bizarrely makes seven. Uh, I've women... never seen a pub. I, who is John Talbot? I've never seen a pub called that. Um, he was uh, a military commander during the Hundred Years' War who basically, right at the end when the Britain, Britain was getting its ass, well, sorry, England was getting its ass kicked. That pub wasn't run by his parents, was it? <laughs> it might well be. Um, William IV, somehow, mm. screams it in there. Probably he liked alcohol so much. Yeah, uh, Edward the Fourth makes it mainly for for Sun in Splendor pubs. Oh, there you go, vindicated Charlotte. She wanted to name a cake after him, and her publisher said no because Americans won't have heard of him. <laughs> <laughs> and, and rounding out um, a mate of Edward the Fourth, sometimes uh, the Earl of Warwick, um, the Kingmaker, mm -hmm. the Bear and the Ragged Staff, very common in the West Country, apparently. 
very different top 10 to what we've ended up with. Right, guys, let's stop and get refills and then we will come back and see who finished at number seven in The Greatest Britons. Hurrah. <laughs> right, we are back. Uh, before we see who finished at number seven, guys, we've been chatting a bit while we were getting our drinks in about if we'd have done uh, not British twats. I'd have gone with General Nivelle, he of the 1917 oh fuck offensive um, on the French front. Lockie, what about you? Oh, I think Ludendorff has a huge amount to answer for for many, many things. Yeah, uh, yeah. contemporary of Nivelle's, uh, of course, but also, you know, had the added, added benefit of becoming a Nazi later on. And, oh, and so isn't it Patan that does that as well? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. also a twat. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's nothing like shipping off your, your own country's youth to concentration camps to cement your twat-like status, is there? Uh, Marcus, what about you? Non-British twat, would you go with both? <laughs> I thought you were going to say, if you didn't say Napoleon, you're obviously <laughs> Napoleon. Um, um, biggest twat of history. Um, but if not Napoleon, because he is, um, someone like we were saying earlier, like Custer, someone who like encouraged a bit of racial genocide but still gets worshipped in his own country, that's, uh, that's got to be up there as British. Definitely. Kit? I go with a guy called Fritz Haber. Um, he was a, a German scientist, won the Nobel Prize for this process that allows you to create fertilizer, also invented chemical weapons, and gave his Nobel Prize speech saying how great they were. I just have to say that Lockie has a tiny little picture of a hairy cock with twat written underneath it, and if he concurs with anyone, he holds it up to his screen. I mean, it's not <laughs> You get the penis of vindication from Lockie. Oh, was I blessed with the penis of vindication? You did get the penis of vindication, Clive. Colonel Walker, the American filibuster who became president of Nicaragua. An absolute, absolute, un undiluted one. Is that where all of that, that saying Banana Republic comes from? It's all around that time. It was just before the American Civil War. Vanderbilt sent him over there basically to build, to build a way across Central America before the Panama Canal to get people around to California. But he was just weird and ended up creating a big war and then getting shot on the beach in Honduras by the British. Nice ending. And, and he failed completely. Holmes? M mine's slightly odd in that it's a Brit, but it happened abroad. And it's um, Reginald Dyer. Sorry, Johnny. Um, who shot... <laughs> <laughs> who, who basically shot a load of Sikhs on a peaceful process in a walled park in Amritsar in 1919, which was kind of disgusting and could never be justified um even though we tried to do it afterwards sorry i'm just mesmerized by marcus's last statement in the chat which was that lucky is holding his tiny twat cock <laughs> <laughs> i i have now labeled the penis of vindication as the tiny penis of vindication <laughs> <laughs> in small print <laughs> what well, no one on the podcast can see was him drawing it round it's the silhouette <laughs> would, um, Alex, yeah. I would briefly offer Cadorna. Because? He's a twat. He, he was just callous, <laughs> yeah. you know, callous and was, was more than happy to, to spill his own men's blood for, for very little gain over the course of, you know, three years. Um, got absolutely screwed at Caporetto and kind of ran away, really, you know, fucked off yeah. on holiday. Left, left the second, the Italian second army to its fate um, and, and, and utterly refused to take 
any criticism whatsoever or any responsibility for it after the event. He just he just spent most of the rest of his life writing letters to people telling them how he was absolutely not responsible for it when everyone else was going, uh, the facts here would seem to... Um... Well, I was going to say, Johnny, what was the name? He used to go down and shoot one in every 10 or 20 men or something like that. Yeah. Bit, attack, but didn't take its objectives and already had suffered yeah. casualties yeah. anyway. Decimation was was sort of broadly him, but I mean, yeah, he, he was a he was a fairly horrendous man um, because he he just clearly didn't care about his men in any way, shape, or form. It was hilarious how he got the gig as as you know commander in chief of Italian armies because his predecessor was a massively paid up fan of the Triple Alliance, wasn't it? And it was yeah, in yeah. communication with the Germans about how best to deploy Italian armies to attack the French and all this sort of stuff, and he snuffed it in the middle of 1914, promoted Cadorna, who was an avowed anti-Austrian, hated the Austrians with a passion, and, you know, all of a sudden changes the, the mind of the Italian military. Brilliant. Yeah, no, he, he, was, he was just just an unpleasant man. Just kind of not being able to, to, to own up to your own fuck-ups is, um, is a pretty bad thing for my money. Uh, James, what about you? Non-Brit. Non-Brit. Either Henry Ford or Christopher Columbus. I mean, uh, Henry Ford, I kind of understand in the back of my mind, but it's left me. Why is he? Yeah, Henry Ford, well, partly, well, he actually did try and get involved in the World Wars. He, I remember he tried to stop one of them, but he was also very anti Semitic. He published a big anti Semitic paper. I mean, 1920, when there was something that went wrong with the baseball season and he basically said the reason was the Jews, among other things. And he just thought he was more important than he actually was, like when he tried to get peace. I think it was during World War One. I. I think he went as part of a big peace convoy or something and he basically got laughed back and laughed at by everyone. But yeah, he was just a very big anti-Semitic and yeah, he's just celebrated he built just... a city in the middle of the Amazon jungle called Fordlandia or something like that. Something like that, I think. Yeah, just... On, as an American, if you had to pick one of your own countrymen. That, that, like, like Britain, I'm afraid we are blessed with an abundance. Uh, <laughs> during the break, uh, Douglas MacArthur was mentioned as one of them. Uh, if you go simply by ego, uh, he would probably be ranked rank up there very close to the top. Um, I'd say probably in the 20th century, uh, MacArthur uh, is idolized by some, like George Patton, uh, hated by others. Uh, he would be a, a decent candidate, I think. Absolutely. Charlotte, what about you? A non-Brit? Uh, non okay. A fairly recent, recent one, really, in, in our particular circle here. John Wayne. Total twat. No, so don't my mum would never speak. I, to, even with I, snake thing, my mum would be like. Do you know, to be fair, do I you know see what? your reasoning. I see your so, reasoning. This, this is going with films, isn't it? You know where I'm going with this. He was the poster boy for HUAC, the House on American Activities Committee, who went after all of the supposed communists in Hollywood, mm. and they had this fantastic term, which was being a pre-anti-fascist. So you could be anti-fascist while America were fighting the fascists. But if you'd gone to a Communist Party meeting before the war, just to see what it's about, because your mates going, whatever, you were hauled in front of the, um, the committees of um, Joseph McCarthy, or is it McCarthy? McCarthy. McCarthy. Thank you. Um, and 
basically charged and imprisoned and you'd lose your you'd lose your livelihood um a lot of people then went on to lose their lives through this it was horrendous and john wayne being the poster boy this is the irony he would be attacking people for being un-american um and he didn't serve he stayed in hollywood and played the general in all those war movies what a twat and he did he didn't actually serve so yeah twat you're getting the tiny pieces of vindication i got yeah. the tiny penis i'm very yeah. happy with that thank you Beth, what about <laughs> i got i gotta change my vote actually after listening to charlotte i'm changing my vote to joe mccarthy who i'd, I'd overlooked hmm. but uh as somebody who was despised by his own party and feared by his own party as well as nonpartisans like General George Marshall and, of course, uh, the Democrats. Uh, I got to change my vote. So, uh, Cake Bastard, you have enlightened me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you are now vulgarity expert bastard instead of redneck bastard. <laughs> because of my education in the topic. Yeah. It's also, it's also worth noting, sorry, very briefly, but if, if you really want to, you know, further evidence, just go and sit down, spend a couple of hours, watch the Green Berets, the film. Oh. It's it's off the scale wankery. It's it's unfucking believable. <laughs> Beth, what about yeah. you? Like a non-Brit. I'm, I'm going to have to bow out of this one because literally the ones that I was thinking of, you've all said. So <laughs> <laughs> Dorman. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think MacArthur is a is a bit of a tool. Uh, there's a lot of civil war generals that would jump. Um, to mine as well, like Forrest or um, Bragg in particular. Um, they're pretty incompetent. And then to look at some Irish examples, I mean, 1916 is a wonderful moment in Irish history, but at the same time, some of the people who participated in that maybe aren't the best individuals, generally speaking. <laughs> Countess Markovic aside. Um, Judy people in the face. <laughs> she shot other people too. <laughs> I'm not defending it. I'm just saying. Um, but I think a, a good number of the sort of the United Irishman era people, like Robert Emmett in particular, was a bit of a donut, um, and he, he he gets away with it because he started this movement. Uh, but he, ironic, actually, this is kind of related to Cromwell, so I'm going to throw this in, but. There's an argument to be made that Cromwell is the reason the green is associated with Ireland because during, he viewed his conquest of Ireland as a crusade, so he marched under a green flag because it's in the same way that Saudi Arabia has a green flag, green is seen as the Garden of Eden and Eternity, etc. So Cromwell brings this green flag over, marches under it. But most of the United Irishmen in the 1790s were descendants of planted members of Cromwell's military. Like their great-grandfathers and stuff would have served under him. So they just took the flag that their ancestors used that is viewed in this Irish context and put a harp on it and then went off to battle. So it's confusing for me as a person. So I'm going to go for some of them. I think Robert Emmett. Okay, cool. Uh, has everyone had a go with the non-Brits? Uh, let's name number seven. So we have at number 10, we've already said the unknown soldier. At number nine was Queen Elizabeth II. Number eight, Charles Darwin, and number seven was Alan Turing, which is a really good showing for him compared to 2002. James, you advocated for him, didn't you? Yeah, that was probably not one of my best arguments, unfortunately, because that was one of the times I wasn't really prepared as such. But yeah, seven's a good shout for you. 21 to number yeah. seven this time. 
Yeah, so it's a good shout. It's a good, it's a good innings for him. He deserves a place in the top ten, and sevens, pretty decent considering the the amount of people we had. Well, the quality of people we had in the top ten. So, I'm starting to figure out, stunned as I scroll through the 2002 list, how Michael Crawford was number seventeen. Oh, what? God! Ahead of Turing, Faraday, the Queen, Stephen Hawking, Emmeline Pankhurst, William Wilberforce. David Bowie, who did gain five places in this poll, Johnny. Um, yeah, Michael Crawford. Michael fucking Crawford. I, I did him in the BBC poll. <laughs> you did you just say I did him in the? Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 he was mine in the BBC poll, but I couldn't work my magic twice, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's bizarre. That really is quite <laughs> extraordinary. Got a really massive extended family, do we think? Oh, Queen Victoria was 18th. Oh, and she, ironically, she did have a fucking massive extended family. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but all of who have since died of haemophilia, so they weren't around in folklore. <laughs> right, okay, let's go for James. You do yours next. Who did you pick? Yeah, this, this is actually tough for me because I was originally going to go with royalty, but then I thought, that's too easy. So I've actually gone with... Vice Admiral Serge George Tyron, Royal Navy. Okay. And he was actually quite successful and quite remarkable in many ways. But he was also an a very big disciplinarian. He had a load of theories and ideas. He wanted officers to act on initiative in effectively the Victorian Navy, which was still on a sort of Nelson's footing. Um, he wasn't really liked by subordinates. He rose quickly through the ranks because he started late. But his career is full of brilliant moments, but also moments of twattery. The one moment that sticks to mind is, I think he was secretary to one of the cabinet at the time. And he was a captain and he decided that he didn't want to carry his bags all the way on this royal visit from a visiting prince. So he says to his friend, I'm going to get an admiral to carry my bag. So he gives his bag to the Admiral saying, can you just hold this while I clear a path for the visiting party? And then he just fucked off and didn't reclaim his bag. So this poor Admiral had to carry his bags all the way there. Um, The reason I really chose him was the loss of HMS Victoria in 1893, because it was all his fault completely. I mean, there were some issues with the officers under him in the inquiry afterwards, but the basically the loss of HMS Victoria, it was part of the regatta in 1893 for the Mediterranean fleet. It's probably the most one of the most infamous in Royal Navy history, and it was actually sacrificed in the 1949 film uh, The Kind Hearts and Coronets. They were doing exercises off Syria in full of an onshore audience. He basically wanted them to do this turn within each other to make it look flashy, a flamboyant manoeuvre to bring the fleet to anchor. So there were two columns of six and five ships that basically reverse course by turning inwards towards each other, the rest doing the same in formation as they reached the positions. However, he decided they'd only need about six cable lengths to do it. 
and at this time the it just wouldn't have matched the uh, the turning diameters of the ships. This was brought up because he'd never liked to explain things to officers, but he actually spoke to them the day before about it at dinner, and they basically all told him, well, hold on, we need a bit more length to do this manoeuvre properly. And, he, and they actually questioned his orders, and he said, no, this is what I want. I've taken your criticism. Okay, we'll do it at eight cables instead. And then he goes back and decides, actually, no, we're going to do it six cables. You follow my orders, basically. So on the day, they decide to do it. And it was about 1,200 yards. So they all started off. They all go. He had to do two signals because there was actually no signal in the signal book for this. So he had to do two signals to two separate squadrons. So he basically started ordering the turn. So they started turning in on one another. The opposing, uh, the second in command, Markham, on the other ship, on the camper down, basically initially didn't turn because he thought, well, hold on, this isn't right. He's not going to turn. It wouldn't work. And before he could send a signal to Tyron about this, Tyron sends a signal saying, basically, what are you waiting for? Get on with it. So it stung this second-in-command, Markham, to do the turn. So they started turning in. The captain of the Victoria told Tyrant three times, Sir, can I reverse engines? This isn't going to work. But decided not to do it without permission until Tyrant eventually said, when he realised the ships were way too close, to um, basically reverse engines. But it was too late. The camper down rammed the Victoria, tore a great hole in her. The ships were wedged together. They came apart, which was the worst thing they could have done. So flooding was coming in. Even though Tyron said for all the watertight doors to be shut, it was too late for that. It was a hot day. All the doors were open. It was a wash. There were rescue boats on hand to come. And he waved the rescue boats away. And they actually disobeyed orders eventually, which was a good thing. But instead, and he was saying, seen after the collision to say, it's all my fault, it's all my fault, blah, blah, blah. But, yeah, he originally waved them away. And in the end, he did stay on the bridge. He did die. But it cost the lives of over 358 people. And it was by pure luck that if they hadn't ignored orders for the rescue boats, the other 357 would have died as well so he was just this obnoxious iron disciplinarian who thought his officers would act on initiative and thought and no one knows what he intended no one knows why he wanted to do this maneuver in the first place he just decided he thought now they'll know what to do when in this time in the royal navy maybe he thought they'd question orders but this time in the royal navy Despite a memorandum saying they could question orders, it's the Victorian Navy. If you questioned orders, you would have been court-martialed regardless. And it's just, it's such an episode of twattery that despite all his successes, and if he'd used his brain and realised how stupid it was, we could have actually performed better in the First World War because the systems he had in place were meant to be great. But yeah, it's just an episode of Twattery that I always end up coming back to, to making the biggest twat, in my opinion. 
the whole cable length thing, he sounds like the sort of chap when asked, are you sure that six inches would, would nod? Oh, yeah, of course, absolutely. Yes. Just, mm. What do you mean by that, Johnny? <laughs> <laughs> everything, yeah, sounds, the... everything sounds better in metric. <laughs> yeah, because I, I think eight cable lengths was about 1,800, 1,600 yards, and then he reduced it to about at least 1,200. And the ships normally needed up to 2,000 to turn properly. So, and I can't remember who it was that served on the Camperdown. He was, I think it was, um, might have been Fisher, actually. Fisher was the XO on Camp, I'm oh, sorry, on um, Victoria, and he survived it. And Fisher obviously, was quite sound in his junior years, though. He went mad and just slept his way through World War One at the end. <laughs> there's, a, there's a great story where Fisher was spotted yeah. dancing on a mess room table by a visiting admiral on his first ship, and he still got away with that inspection. Let's go to Beth. Beth, who have you picked? Right, well, I did, I did want another twat, but it was take, it was taken away from me, so I had to go for my second choice, which was, uh, again, sticking to the to the stereotype of British history being all about kings and queens and whatnot. I've gone for King John. Um, so bad that there hasn't been another one since then. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so he was born as the one of the children of. King Edward the oh I always forget which Edward he was and uh, there's too many of them I get them all mixed up so one of the sons of Edward the second one of the younger sons as well he was never expected really if you look at the um the stuff that's written about him he was never really expected to go anywhere do anything um he wasn't going to be he wasn't ever thought to have become the king of England um he was severely lacking as his nickname suggests of John Lackland, he was lacking in land, but also he um, lacked in physical stature. It said that he was much smaller than his legitimate siblings, because um, his father did have legitimate, illegitimate children as well. Um, oh, hang on, his his father was Henry, not even Edward. So hang on, scrap that. Hen Henry the second. Um, so he was always a bit of the outsider a little bit left on his own um he was as i said didn't really have much opportunity to to take any to land he wasn't going to be the king so he was kind of left to roll with his own punches really um obviously king john yes but also his famous brother also the king richard the lionheart now when you've got a sibling whose nickname is literally lionheart you're not really going to have much of a fair start anyway um, and he, he's also a little bit of an idiot anyway he hardly spent any time in England you know he was off fighting in the crusades and had people left, left people in charge for him and by all accounts John and Richard didn't get on either um, this is I think the first one I think we all have difficult relationships with our siblings at certain points in our lives I, I can attest to that being one of three girls I can certainly attest to that um, but when Richard was captured on his way back from the Crusades and was being held to ransom, John even tried to negotiate with the ransomers not to get his his brothers back to England, but they tried to negotiate to keep him in prison for longer, so that he could stay in like so that he was the one in charge because the other siblings, the other brothers that they had, had all had all been had all had all died of various reasons. So he was next in line to the to the throne. Um, but I do like this. Even after all of this, Richard did think, I will forgive him. He is my brother. I will still, you know, take pity pity on him. 
because then he decided to pardon John for, um, you know, trying to keep him locked up. And this quote um, is written in, in a letter saying, think no more of it, John. You are only a child who has had evil counsellors, which I think is oh, that's a, such a scathing indictment. You are only a child who's been poorly advised, which I think is just absolutely fantastic and of course it just goes with the theme that you know the middle ages are not really well known for people being loyal and whatnot you know backstabbing galore going on between um not just families but friends anyone if you had the opportunity to stab someone in the back and it would do you anything good then then you would do it um he's implicated in many many crimes the first one being being implicated in the murder of his nephew, um, Arthur, who was the son of one of the other brothers, who's called Geoffrey. Geoffrey had already died. Arthur, Geoffrey was older than, than John. So technically, technically at the time, Arthur should have been king after Richard. Um, but he's implicated, he dies in mysterious circumstances. So he's implicated in that murder. And at the time, the nephew was only 16 years old. The, the rumour that was spreading at the time was that he, that John had um, got drunk and thrown him into the River Seine in Paris because they were in France at the time. Um, he's also then accused by a lord, Lord Robert Fitzwalter, who's one of, eventually we'll find out, one of the leaders um, for the, uh, the discontented barons then bringing forward the Magna Carta. Robert Fitzwalter accuses John of trying to rape his daughter, Matilda, that's another crime just generally all around nasty character it's actually believed obviously we know that king john is the villain in the robin hood legends and myths um it's actually believed that because her name was matilda that matilda may have been may obviously it's a legend have been an inspiration for maid marion you know the the wholesome female having her you know the maiden being attacked by this horrible horrible vicious person and then also to go along with that actually then have disney make a film where he turns you into they turn you into anthropomorphic creatures and don't come too well out of that either he's also has a massive falling out with the pope so scrap king henry the eighth and his um spat with rome and what have you he was king john was the first one to have an argument with the pope um started off because King John, when he became the king, wanted a particular man to be the Archbishop of Canterbury and he was one of his supporters, and the Pope said no. And because the Pope said no, he had a bit of a tantrum and closed all the churches and was still taking all the money from the monasteries and stuff. So the Pope, Pope Innocent the Third, had King John excommunicated for four years from 1209 to 1213. They did later patch things up because the, he had the Pope on his side for um, trying to get out of the Magna Carta, which I'll come to in just a moment. So not only that, he's a horrible, nasty person who's alleged to have killed his nephew, attempt, attempted to rape a young female. He's had this nasty, he tried to keep his brother in prison for longer um, than, than when he was a uh, kept captive in mainland Europe he also managed to lose a substantial amount of the French territory that was held by by the English crown um you know within five years of him becoming king he'd lost he'd lost Normandy which as we all know from William the Conqueror is a huge huge part of at the time was a huge part of the, the British crap the, the 
and British for the English crown. You know, it's part of their empire, as it were, and he manages to lose that. And he loses part, ter- parts of territory in France, left, right and centre, um, and then forces him to basically live in England full time. The horror. Um, which then leads on as well to tying in quite nicely with Magna Carta because the barons had footed a lot of the bill for a lot of the wars that had taken place in France and they were getting pretty fed up with having their money spent and nothing happening with it. So then we have the the barons' rebellion, as it were. So one of the most important moments in in history for certainly Britain and England um, you know, the document, an original original document that places limitations on the power of the monarchy. Um, we have people to keep the monarchy in check, as it were. So you've got 25 barons who were selected to basically keep King John in, in line. Um, but, of course, being a twat, being an idiot, the first thing he does is get the Pope, uh, you know, contacts the Pope and says, hang on a second, these... These po- these people, these barons, have you know they're trying to put laws on me, and I'm I'm the king. You know you should be. This isn't this isn't right. This isn't lawful. And the pope went, mm, actually, yeah, you're probably right there. Um, and this betrayal sparked a conflict between the barons and the monarchy, which became known as the First Barons' War, which went on for two years. Um, and this is when John dies, and probably one of the most two of the most famous things that happened to King John. Um, happened within the last few months of his life. First of all, he's retreating away from the battlefield, going across the wash in Lincolnshire, and manages to lose his luggage, which was coming along fairly slowly behind him, including the crown jewels. How much of an idiot do you have to be to lose the crown jewels? I mean, that's just absolutely ridiculous. Why would um, you take them with you to war, either? Yeah, exactly. Why would you, you know, for me, you keep your jewels at home, it be nice shiny stuff in a, in a safe place. But then as well, not only that, he, he literally dies because he crapped himself. He died of dysentery. He literally <laughs> died of the shits. He's the king of shits, I think I'm going to go with. Um, he, and he ends up buried in, in Worcester Cathedral, which is quite, quite nice, actually. But, uh, yeah, I think for me, he is, you know, the original twat. He is the reason why we've got so, you know, our, the way our legal system works. I mean, yes, there were 63 clauses and only three are still part of the law today. But it all developed from from him, from King John. He's just, oh, he's just an absolute idiot. And I like, I, you know, I think that his being the only King John just, you know, it's like, it's like bad karma, isn't it? Don't want to do it in case it happens again. So. Yeah, you've also I'm, missed the point that he sucks his farm and cries for his mum as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Still my favourite Disney film. Uh, uh, yeah. And died of poo. Yeah, crapped himself. Yeah, chicken with the guitar. Okay, let's move on and do one more, and then we'll do some more of who's in the top ten. Let's go to Lockie. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. 
That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Who no. have you picked? Well, Tiny twat cock bastard. Who is it? <laughs> Big names are ever changing here. We now have lycra clad cycling bastard, uh, Clive, and John is now children's book expert bastard. Go on, Lockie. Well, I've gone for a guy who's been in the news recently. Um, and I'm actually sort of not picking him for that uh, because, I mean, Cecil Rhodes, all the reasons that we'd haul his statue down are just well out there. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to approach it from a slightly different angle and possibly one that his defenders might not think about too much. When I say his defenders, um, those who, who believe that you know, we're inherently better as British people, um, because he certainly thought that, 100%. Um, and, well, let's see where it got him. Well, he had an early death anyway. He died when he was 48, whatever. Uh, Cecil Rhodes um, of De Beers, Diamonds, and Cape to Cairo Railway, and having a country named after him fame. Why do I think he's a twat? Um, kicking off a war, a really bad, nasty war that killed a lot of our soldiers. Actually, I'm talking about the Second Boer War. Now, like end of the end of the 19th century, South Africa's a difficult place uh, for Britain. I mean, through the sort of 1870s, we toyed with the idea of, oh, broadly speaking, actually, prior to the 1870s, we didn't care about South Africa. You know, what, what do we what do we want with South Africa? I mean, Cape Colony's all right as a trading point. You know, it's quite a valuable spot at the foot of Africa. All right, well, we'll, we'll have that. It's not until diamonds are discovered up at Kimberley that we give two shits about South Africa, really, sort of further up the country. So, well, yeah, right, interest grows around that. And sure enough, Cecil Rhodes is, is keen on all this stuff. Um, we have the Zulu War and First Boer War, uh, 1879, 1880, um, which... I mean, we've got disasters for the British Empire and all of this. All right, yeah, the Zulus are beaten eventually, but we have the disaster at Isanwana, um, and we also have defeat in the in the First Boer War. It's, it's it doesn't go well, and with all this, we're trying to confederate South Africa like it's Canada or something, and it ain't. It's just different different situation. But then time wears on, and uh, as eighteen eighties, we discover gold. Um, in Transvaal, you get the Bitvartas run gold rush, and and you can be sure that people who are avaricious scumbags like Rhodes are going to take an interest in this. And this is possibly what happens when you bolt your country to a very powerful financial institution like the Bank of England. But um, yeah, sure enough, you get you get avaricious assholes like Rhodes travelling around the world, seeing what we can get, and also determining British policy. Unfortunately. Um, 
so he's out in South Africa. He's managing diamond mines. He's doing all sorts of stuff and acquiring wealth uh, like a mad bugger. Um, we get in this weird situation in South Africa where actually the, the, the Boer republics, um, the South African Republic and the Orange Free State, um, actually have more British people or, or overseas people in there than Boers um, because so many people have gone there for the gold rush. Conversely, also in South Africa, you also, within the British territories of the Cape Colony and Natal, you probably have more Boers than you do British people. So it's a delicate it's kind of balancing act that's going on diplomatically. What you do not need at all is a moment of utter stupidity. And here's where Rhodes comes in, uh, of course. Now, what he's going to do, he wants to take control of the gold mines uh, in the Boer Republics. Of course he does, because that's what he's interested in. Um, what's he got? He's got a neighbouring country, is what he is. He's got Rhodesia um, under his control. And there he's got uh, troops of the, the British South African country uh, company. And uh, he's got a fella called Leander Starr Jameson, uh, who will do as he's told. Now, what their plan is, is to ride down into uh, Johannesburg, uh, effectively, whip up all those Brits who are there, have a big rebellion and seize control of the Boer Republics. Uh, and so off he sends Jameson. Now, Jameson sets off on his little ride, da, 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 and when he gets close to uh, Johannesburg, he finds that, hang on, it doesn't seem like there's anyone with him at all, and he gets picked up by uh, Boers and arrested. Now, the Boers do something which is quite clever, uh, I think. They effectively hand Jameson over to the British with a big shape, shake of the head, and, uh, you know, we're not angry, we're just disappointed, um, which, as a, as a sort of diplomatic slap in the face to the British Empire is massive. You know, by far and away the most powerful country in the world is having its wrists slapped by the South African Boer Republics. All right? And this is all down to this mug roads and the position he's put everyone in. It's not just that, though, because what it means is that the South African Republics now know that pricks like Rhodes have their gold mines firmly in their sights. So what do they do with all that gold that they're sitting on? They buy guns. All right, they spend their time buying guns, not just from the Germans. There are plenty of Mauser rifles and Krupp pieces of artillery coming down. They've also got Maxim machine guns coming down from Birmingham uh, in there. So it's even, even better, really. Anyway, all of this boils down to 1899 and the kicking off of the Second Boer War. I don't know how many stats do we need about this? But it's got to be Britain's worst war prior to the First World War. I think... Um, Having sown the seeds for this and, and shown the Boers that there's very little way out for them, um, Rhodes can wear it. What have we got? 23,000 British soldiers killed, um, another 100,000 wounded and invalided sick. That's British soldiers, even if you don't care about foreigners, right? That's our blokes dying. Plus, you know, if you do happen to care about other people, you've already got tw 27,000 women and children dying in camps. Concentration um, camps. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, they're not, they're not quite Nazi concentration camps, and it's probably down to negligence and disease, but that's not okay. All right? Um, probably about 6,000 Boer soldiers die. It's not, it's not a series of successes, really, for, for the British Empire and all of this, and it's not until Lord Roberts brings a an armed steamroller down that uh, things get sorted out. 
down there. So, for kicking off Britain's worst war, getting a ton of our blokes killed, as well as being a massive, avaricious, racist scumbag and a total bastard, Cecil Rhodes. There you go, twat. He is a twat. <laughs> he verges on the moving out of the twat category and into just the shameless, horrible bastard category. But he is undoubtedly an absolute twat as well. And you were on this from when we hung up last week. You were like, I want him next week. I hate that guy. Seriously. <laughs> yeah. What a douche. Um, yeah, it's just that fucking, that whole brief period of time where you could literally just go and get yourself a country in Africa if you if you literally don't give a shit about other people mm. and how you treat them and what you have to do to get it. You can have a country named after you. Just And you can treat the people there like shit as well if you want. Well also because half the reasons behind the Boer War were um once all the Brits were there when they had elections, like we certainly got interested in democracy when there were states that bordered ours that had a large portion of Brits that were there. So you know, it's slightly astonishing. And the other thing I remember, and I've just quickly Googled this, is I remember my mum watching an ITV drama in the 90s called Rhodes that had um, Martin Shaw of the professionals fame for, for, for elder viewers. Um, <laughs> um, and I just Googled that, and apparently it was the most expensive TV production ever by that point. It cost 10 million to make. And you're like, surely by 1996, we knew he was a massive racist and stuff. That stuff wasn't particularly hidden if you wanted to look for it. It's kind of astonishing. On the pro, the, the series synopsis just said it focused on his greed and avarice, which is slightly astonishing. Yeah, as if that was like remotely balancing the scale for everything that he did. Yeah, I'm guessing it's not on ITV Hub now. No. <laughs> I, do you know what? I've briefly caught the professionals lately on ITV4 in the mornings before we start recording History Hack. And I can't believe Martin Shaw used to have an afro. It's it's possibly some of the worst scripted drama in the history of television. I, it's, it's like watching a really so bad. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it's not great, is it? Right. No. We say who what, Rhodes as much of a twat as Clive though, because Clive seems to do it on steroids. Clive, have you just started talking about yourself in the first person? <laughs> no, there is that. <laughs> Robert Clive. I think the thing is Robert Clive won. Overcome by guilt and his obnox self obnoxiousness. I think he still lived longer than Rhodes. Rhodes he's about forty eight. To create all that mayhem in forty eight years. I think don't Clive. Clive doesn't go through this kind of reputation laundering business, though, does he? That that Rhodes goes through, where he tries to no, paint himself as a what a nice guy, what a philanthropist. It's a bit like that. But Clive, no, but Clive, Clive doesn't away because he he was thought as an absolute shit during his lifetime, immediately after his death. But then a hundred years later, when Cecil Rhodes is around, suddenly they're putting up statues to Clive of India and everything. So it's kind of the Victorians who started idolising him and then created Rhodes as well. Victorians uh, actually put up, well, maybe it was after the Victorians, but there is a statue of Queen Victoria somewhere up north where if you look at it from the right angle, she's got a massive boner. Peter Hart wrote a song about it by the Naughty Lumps. It's called Queen Victoria's Knob. Go check it out. 
he also has the, the image which you can gladly share with anyone who wants to enter into discussion on it. I want to see more than anything in the world. Yeah, if you Google it, well, if you want to Google it or you can just, let's ask Peter Hart on Twitter, then you haven't got to uh, go with these search history connotations uh, that Norman's got having Googled Dr. Zeus porn earlier on. Right, <laughs> let's reveal number six. Uh, so we have 10, Unknown Soldier, 9, Elizabeth II, 8, Charles Darwin, 7, Alan Turing, and number 6 was Joseph Lister. So Kit, he slipped a bit in the final week. Yeah, but I'm going to take that. That's given, given he's relatively unknown, even though he's had a massive contribution, to come in at 6, mm. that's a pretty good showing. It is, and that makes him Britain's greatest ever scientist as well. Mm, mm, mm. Does that please you? <laughs> it does a little bit, because he, d he didn't really discover anything he just sort of adopted techniques that were discovered by other people but you know i can't really argue the the impact he's had and you know creating modern medicine as we know it is pretty important i'm just no noting the reaction on the zoom wall and and beth, beth is beth is leaning forward and now getting excited because i think she's clearly still in the game <laughs> <laughs> oh shit you gave me last week i'm so pleased <laughs> despite my best efforts Twats and things like that. Is there is there like a collective award that we can give the East India Company? Best team. Best team. Surely they've been refounded. So under living living awards, you can't do it. I'm starting to see a pattern here, and I'm actually think I would have done better if we'd let Andy written the piss out of the unknown soldiers, to be honest, because he was the only one who got away scot free. <laughs> <laughs> um, I can't see him in the top 100 last time, Kit, and now he's number six. Well, well, there you go. He's doing all right. He's doing all right, and much of that obviously down to Lindsay Fitzharris and her campaigning as well on Twitter. But um, yeah, totally deserved. So that Bravo. Wait a minute, but this means Tolkien's in the top five. Oh, no. Oh. Shakespeare's in the top five. Oh. Uh, do you know what? As we release this top five, uh, it's going to get quite hilarious. <laughs> in this room. Norman's <laughs> laughing his head off because he's just you, you may actually you may actually see me walk away from the computer where I find if, out Tolkien's cook. If he wins, <laughs> we're finning this whole project, okay? <laughs> uh, spoiler alert, Tolkien has not won. Don't oh. Oh, shit. I was gonna say there's a lot of people on the internet who wear elf ears and could be high like voting. Yeah, but they they all have missed their chance. They they just did not vote in the last week like they did in the previous weeks. I think they, they just assumed that it was just going on too long and didn't understand the format and thought they'd done their bit. <laughs> Um, which is which is which is unusual for Tolkien fans because things go on for fucking ages. Clive has now changed his name to J.R. Tolkien is a top five <laughs> bastard. We also have left-handed witch bastard with Beth now. Yeah. Charlotte Bastard McBastardy face. Is that what you've done on yours? I can't see it all. Uh, yeah, and oh, moved on to... It's pronounced the McBastard face. Yeah. I was going to say, you are asking the same people that essentially voted to name a Royal Navy ship Boaty McBoatface to name the greatest Britain. So it's not as bad as it could have been. Johnny has now moved on to Red Wine Bastard. Um, Johnny and Holmes um, are basically in their sort of ex-judging capacity 
deemed themselves too good to bother googling a twat in British history. So let's go to with Demop Happy. Yeah, Hang on. I'm, I'm, slightly, I'm slightly, I'm slightly worried that Johnny's on the red wine because I've got to meet him on a, <laughs> the summit about nine a, about ten a.m. tomorrow morning. <laughs> yeah, well, let, let everyone know. Oh, who's the Royal East India East India bastard? That's probably <laughs> Mark. Yeah. That's me. Yeah. Right. <laughs> okay. Let's go to who have we got left? We've got Charlotte left, and we've got Dorman. Let's go to Dorman first, and we'll save Charlotte till last because I know her is a good one. Dorman, you better have chosen who I think you have. Um, yeah, I mean, if pick picking a twat in British history as an Irishman is fairly fucking difficult, um, <laughs> especially as one who's interested in military history as well. Like. I decided to stray away from my own field of interest, which is the 18th century, because I could just pick any British commander in America, and that would have been fine. Um, but instead, I've moved into the 19th century, uh, and we've gone for Ch- George Charles Bingham, 3rd Earl of Lucan, um, who uh, categorically, I think, is history's greatest frat. And yes, I do consider Wolf a twat because he got himself shot. <laughs> this is true. Right, yeah. go on. Gosh. So, the Earl of Lucan, uh, he was born in 1800, meaning he conveniently missed out on the only 19th century war that Britain fought in that actually mattered. Um, he spent the early part of his military career playing dress-up with the 17th Lancers, and there he cemented himself as a deeply unpopular officer with both his fellow officers and the rankers. Um, he retired from the army due to boredom in 1837, and he retired to a place called Castle Bar in County Mayo, which is a lovely town. Um, uh, there he announced he would not breed paupers to pay priests and began his policy of mass eviction and essentially mini genocide. Um, he got rid of the local magistrate, a man called O'Malley, and immediately began bulldozing Irish homes and land clearance. He then summoned O'Malley to court on trumped up poaching charges and behaved like such a knobhead that he himself ended up getting dismissed from the magistrate for contempt. Uh, he eventually managed to get himself reinstated, possibly through bribery, no one's really sure, but he, he got himself back in that position. Um, in his tenure in Mayo, he also con- confirmed his twattery by doing things like forcing the local barrack commander to board up the windows that faced his property because he didn't want the soldiers looking at his wife. Um, in Mayo, he's known as the exterminator and <laughs> to put into perspective how much he was hated, they thought he was in London one weekend, so they burnt an effigy of him. But he wasn't in London. So, handling it like a mature adult that he was, he rode into town, charged the protesters, and shouted at them, I'll evict the lot of you, as they ran back to their homes. So, you know, a very mature man, um, really knew what he was doing. Then comes the less funny part, which is his actions during the Great Famine of 1847, plus or minus a few years. Uh, so during those years, Lucan shows not only a disregard for public opinion, but also human life. Uh, he, in one parish of Ballinrobe, he demolished 30, 300 cabins and evicted 2,000 people, probably to their deaths. He, during the famine campaign to close the workhouse, which was the only source of food for thousands of families as well, you know it's fairly fucked up when the British Parliament is criticising an Englishman for their actions in Ireland in the 19th century. Like, that's how bad it got. He is a terrible person during this period. And his exterminator 
career basically comes to a close in 1854 when he gets the big call up and he gets shipped to the Crimea. Now, it's fairly rare to have a twat in history who is both twatty in their civil career and military career, but Lucan manages both, which is fairly impressive. So he's given full command of a cavalry division en route to the Crimea. Um, he was the brother-in-law of the equally incompetent Lord Cardigan. And Lucan's quickly given the nickname Lord Lucan for his inaction of the Battle of Alma. And then comes the one we've been waiting for, the Battle of Balaclava. <laughs> now, where Lucan takes admittedly quite vague and poorly written orders from Lord Raglan and is fairly single-handedly responsible for the lowest point in British military history, or one of, I would argue. Because what's so utterly abhorrent about Lucan's decision to send the Light Brigade down that valley was it was incredibly preventable, completely overshadows the rest of the battle. And you shatter some of the finest light cavalry in Europe entirely on your own merit and your own incompetence. He was being more concerned about being outpaced by Raglan's aide, Captain Nolan, who was trying to cancel the charge than he was by Nolan's death that then led to the charge still going on. So after that, thankfully, he was finally cast aside into disgrace where he belongs. And he doesn't really appear too much until he eventually dies, sadly, peacefully later on in life. But I just, it's difficult to put into words how much of a knobhead he truly is, both on a civil and the military scale, responsible for the deaths of thousands and just a really petty. Yeah, concurred. What do you reckon, everyone? Twat. Yeah, I remember <laughs> learning about him at A level. I, I think I'd managed to erase his twattiness or even memory from my mind. Right, Clive's so. Potter twerp <laughs> sign is up, and so is the tiny penis of vindication. And Charlotte has made <laughs> a sign too that just says knobber, and that's up as well. Uh, so I mean, it, I mean, even even wearing a balaclava makes you look a bit of a twat, doesn't it? I've always <laughs> and, and wearing a cardigan at the wrong time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's responsible for two questionable items of clothing. Only yeah. Mister Rogers could pull that one off. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> is that all Mister Rogers pulled off? Yeah. Oh, oh no! no. That, you're, thinking, you're going back to Doctor Seuss. <laughs> <laughs> right, I'm, I'm gonna. Who's Mister Rogers? Uh, too young. He's, he was an American children's entertainer who was mighty strange, but apparently quite okay. He was looking at a recent film by Tom Hanks. Oh, right, okay. We do, we do have a Lord Cardigan Award at the Rugby Club, actually, which um, we, we award each year to someone who has shown tremendous stupidity uh, in the face of the enemy and, and either, done, <laughs> either done something to... to um, uh, Bring great harm on themselves or the team, and I was awarded that in 2011 for um, well, it was the final game of the season, and it was the league decider. And I came on actually as a substitute. I was coming back from injury, and um, within about three minutes of coming on the pitch, I was sent to the sin bin for punching. Um, which was fair, actually, to, to, to be honest, to the ref. Um, and then uh, was off in the bin, and I was just chucking a ball around uh, on, the, on the sideline. And then the ref uh, came over when there was a little break in play and said, I heard what you said. You called me a fucking twat and showed me a red card while I was in the sin bin. It was completely unfair. Um, oh, I'm sensing a so degree. are you a twat from history, then? Or 
<laughs> well, it got me an award at least at the rugby club. <laughs> you awarded a twat award. <laughs> I, I, will, I will say this: uh, this went to uh, a, a, a tribunal, and um, I actually got off the red card. Um, I, I'm, I'm sensing a degree of pride in that story, Andy. To be honest, <laughs> wow. I mean, to be honest, I had a similar thing happen to me. I play hockey, and I had a similar thing happen to me at an away game at Surbiton. And, um, oh my God! Oh, I remember this. <laughs> and actually, I, I didn't get a red card. I got a, I got a yellow card, which in hockey is discretionary. Um, it means you can be off from uh, between two minutes and the rest of the half. And um, <laughs> it was it was a travesty that I was sent off. Anyway, but um, then we started barracking the referee from the the umpire from the side, which then reinforced his opinion. And, he, and then he said, "Well, you're not coming back on." And so I thought. Well, fuck him. I'll teach him. I'm not staying here for the rest of the game. I'll get. I'll leave. And then um, it was only when I left and stormed out of service and hockey club that I realised that I didn't know where the fuck I was, where the nearest station was, or anything. <laughs> to, be, to be fair, there was there was a brief period during that time where it was it was basically like being mates with Vinnie Jones. You'd meet him on three consecutive Saturdays. Red card. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. This was true. Right. Okay. Uh, I'm going to reveal who has finished fifth and who has finished fourth just because it's fucking hilarious. Okay, so in fifth place in the list of greatest Britons is Shakespeare. What? And in fourth place is Tolkien. (laughs) (laughs) I just don't know what's funnier. The fact that Shakespeare got what was coming to him or the fact that fucking Tolkien... Is the fourth greatest Britain ever. Tolkien <laughs> scraped into the Champions League spots. I mean, what has gone wrong? I mean, he is awesome. No medal. No medal. So, actually, Shakespeare is fifth, and he was fifth in 2002. Oh, I, I, I think the most important thing is that we, we need to respect the votes of our viewers and listeners, don't we? <laughs> he says straight face briefly I'm scrolling all the way down to see where Tolkien finished last he was 92nd in the Greatest Britain poll he is you're right whoever said it he is the Leicester City of this poll but, but it has been put up for canonisation since the 2002 poll so that might have swung it and perhaps, perhaps coming forth is the miracle that he required Maybe it's going to get through now. <laughs> Was it the canonisation, not the huge Hollywood success it films? Yeah. It must be. Oh. Of course. I'm speechless and that doesn't happen very often. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, I tried so hard. I tried to educate you people and look at what you've done. But Alex, Alex, it must have just been the eloquence of my impassioned plea for him. That and the slightly disturbing amount of... Um, campaigning that several very large Tolkien what? fan groups did on Twitter. I saw it was a passion. them in it. <laughs> There's a lot of short, hairy people around who are jumping to joy. <laughs> right, we will announce the top three shortly. But before that, we've saved, quite simply, the biggest twat of the lot in British history to the last, haven't we, Charlotte? We have indeed. I hope you're not talking about me. No, um, <laughs> just checking. Just Someone who offered to make me a salted caramel-based cake of my choice was definitely not fast as a twelve. No, because I haven't. I definitely haven't put in enough time and energy as our final twat. 
and yeah. I believe our greatest twat. Um, so before I start, I have to declare a conflict of interest. I am a royalist, clearly. I named my entire cake company after the restoration. I don't restore cakes. I named it after a period of British history because I am a nerd. Um, <laughs> So, uh, with that in mind, I would like to declare that Oliver Cromwell, the Lord Protector of the Commonwealth of England, Scotland and Ireland, was a twat. Yep. Everyone is on board, I think, especially the Irishman in the room. Thank you. Yeah. Thank crazy. you. But as if you needed to, you have your bashing and then <laughs> everyone else can take theirs as well. But before yeah, you start, I do have to say, we may just lose John. Um, who is currently I can't I can't a wall bastard now because he has to go an adult. But John, for the last few weeks, thank you so much. You've been fantastic. We've loved you. Your input from the other side of the pond has been great. I'm glad you didn't get it and that you're not lurgified. <laughs> thank you. It's been a genuine pleasure, and uh, hope to see you guys on another installment uh, as we go into uh, COVID part two. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent T-shirt, John. <laughs> excellent right charlotte Thanks, go for it okay right oh she rubs her hands with glee this is so much fun so he's still a controversial figure 400 years on from his birth over 400 years on from his birth and i i do feel i do feel that i can't even express what a twat oliver cromwell is as an english person um, was what he did to Ireland was fucking deplorable. Um, but that's, that's not my area. I have spent my entire life avoiding Oliver Cromwell like he was coronavirus. I would normally say the plague, but let's make this more topical. Um, for me and for other such people, we date Charles II's reign from the moment that his father lost his life. So Cromwell didn't happen, fingers in ears. Um, I don't want to talk about his actions in the civil wars. Again, that's not my area. It's, it's something I studied many years ago, but it's horrible. His behavior afterwards is what I want to talk about. So starting perhaps after the Battle of Naseby, which was 375 years ago this June, um, after the uh, parliamentarians had won the battle, they found a load of women who they thought were Irish so of course let's kill them let's massacre these women turned out they were welsh so that prejudice um was something that they that clearly meant an awful lot to oliver cromwell to to me and from my reading my opinion don't at me cromwell represents absolutely nothing of the parliamentarian cause when they went into the civil war they went into curtail perhaps the behavior of Charles I, who, God love him, was also a bit of a twat. We, we're, we're okay with that. He is a twat. There are two twats in every story. Um, Cromwell was, was left so to hold the Especially if you're Dr. Zeus. <laughs> <laughs> there is some stealth going on in my, in my, uh, my, my side yeah. eye here. Um, so... He was left the reins after General Lord Fairfax, another twat, absented himself. So when it became obvious they were going to kill the king, Fairfax went, eh, don't know if I fancy being involved in this. I certainly don't want to write my name on anything. So I'm going to go off 
to my estates that I've nicked off the Dukes of Buckingham. And then, this is the clever thing, I'll marry my daughter to the Duke of Buckingham, who's the, king, the king's son's bestie. Smart move, twat. Um, <laughs> so the regicide, okay. Cromwell, involved in the regicide, heavily involved in it. That was not cool, right? But if you're going to kill somebody, don't nick their job and their house. I mean, it's just, that's just out of order. So Cromwell made himself king in all but name, moved into the palace, not straight away. It took him a few years of everything turning to shit and the country realizing we can't run without somebody in charge. So we'll put the guy that the army likes in charge. Hello, not a republic, totally a military coup. And don't come at me with the humble petition and advice. This was many years into the protectorate, but Cromwell made them ask him, what, three times if he'd basically be king and name his successor? I mean, that is straight out of Shakespeare. That is a play out of Richard III. Ask me three times. I'll keep saying no, so you think I'm all, all modest. He was crowned. He had ermine um, robes made for himself and a little crown. He had one for his wife as well. When his mother died, he had her given a state funeral in Westminster Abbey. That, my friends, is a king. The ultimate twat move for me was naming his son as his successor. Hello, that is a monarchy. This is supposed to be everything that you didn't want. We have got rid of the office of kings. We're not doing it. We've taken his, the king's head off. Twat. It's Animal Farm. He put himself in at the top and he gave his son the reins after him. Now, don't give me that he died suddenly. and He didn't have time to secure the succession. He didn't have time to figure out you know, who's going to be the next best guy after, obviously, me to take care of all of this? No, no, no. He did not. He had the best part of a decade to figure this shit out until he died of either a UTI, which is, you know, not a nice thing to die of. Or I read somewhere that he died of malaria, which he caught in Ireland, which I like to think is the truth, because I like to think that, you know, they got him in the end. Um, the whole the whole thing with Cromwell and closing down London, closing down the theatres, closing down the alehouses, closing down all the all the fun stuff in London. I'm really I hate that. Um, and selling off the late king's art collection by size, so they didn't actually look at you know we've got a Titian here, we've got some Da Vinci here. We have a big painting and a small painting. Now, fair enough. If you are a pig farmer from the Fens, you might not know about art. But maybe, maybe you might want to find someone who does know about art so you get value for your money. But I get the feeling with Cromwell's lot that they'd had enough of experts, right? Always a smart way to go. So he's remembered as being a very dour fellow. We can all agree on that. And the man who cancelled Christmas. Now, whether he did this or not, whether this historians like to argue about whether he's remembered this way and whether it's fair. I think what we can all agree is that if we were going down to the pub now, after God knows how many weeks of not going to the pub, we would not pick Oliver Cromwell to go with us, would we? We'd pick absolutely anybody else. Um, he was far from a barrel of laughs, and I think he was a twat. Yeah, um, I completely concur, but I, there's only one person in this room that deserves to roast him next. Go on. I mean, oh, where to start? I, I actually, I actually don't know what to say. There's so much to say about him. Uh, like to Heller, to Connacht, Drogheda, the various mini massacres he carried out, the fact that his land ownership policy affected Ireland 
arguably until the 20th century. To this day, some people still do not have their land that is technically part of their family because it was reassigned. There's a reason he's hated over here. That's, that's all it is. Like, I can't even be funny about it. He's, he's yeah. just... <laughs> like, I just... I, do you know what? Never anywhere else in history have I heard of someone being dug up just so that they can, like, crap on the corpse some more. And oh, not true. apart from with Cromwell, there was one case. Uh, one of the popes was uh, was dug up by his uh, successor. It was called the Cadaver Synod, and they put the corpse on trial. Oh yeah, yeah. They were really pissy. He wasn't answering back. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they put him on trial, didn't they? And it was like, ah, yeah. he makes no comment. He's obviously guilty. Amazing. There's some ultimate twi- um, Wikipedia trolling of Cromwell, which mm-hmm. is brilliant. If you look it up, it says resting place, Tyburn. Yeah. Someone, someone took the effort there. What, what I quite like is that, you know, in East Anglia, nothing much happens. It's generally pretty stable and, you know, it's, it's usually got quite a lot of rich people in it. And apart from, you know, the, the whole witchy thing and the prostitutes thing a few years ago, um, there's, not, there's not too much that Ipswich <laughs> is, is famous for. But um, rioting uh, against... Um, the, the the stopping of the celebration of Christmas. Fuck off! Like we we like Christmas. Yeah, don't take that away from us. Even if, if the people of Ipswich are upset with you, then you know you've done something wrong. You don't want to piss off Ipswich. Yeah, you really, <laughs> really don't. If you set aside all the atrocities and the miserableness of getting rid of Christmas and fiercely, put all those to one side. He was also somebody who had an amazing opportunity to achieve a huge amount with the Putney debates, with the diggers, the levellers, all of the political theory coming into being for the first time in this country. And he squandered it all and made himself a king. What yeah. a twat. The it's animal farm. He couldn't resist it. This yeah. guy is such a prick that Sydney Sussex College to this day cannot tell people where his skull is in case they vandalise it somehow. It's I under the wanted to find it for years. It's Wait. under the flagstones at the front of one of the chapels, and there's a society of people who dance on all of the flagstones just in case every year. <laughs> but it's the hypocrisy that gets me more than anything. Yeah. So fair enough if you if you're like, do you know what? We're we're Puritans. We don't want this popery. We don't want all this fancy stuff. We don't want to have music. We don't want to have dancing. Fine. Don't, when your daughter gets married, have a shit ton of violinists turn up for her, and he. he publicly hated violin music that was like music of the devil um and again with the the state funeral for his mother and all of these things and all of the trappings that a puritan would look at and say hang on mate you're you're going to the dark side here it's the hypocrisy that gets me about cromwell he was not the you know he was not this sort of great hope for a a republic protestant uh, nation was, Are we saying that he had crackers at his own Christmas dinner? Like, secretly? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. After coming back from the theatre and the pub. Yes. Oh, party hats as well. So he basically did a Napoleon before Napoleon did, in a sense. As, as, as Brits, we're, we're quite ambivalent towards him, culturally, aren't we, really? I know we're trying to change that now, and I, there's stuff that I, I've heard during the weeks that we've been doing this, but the fact he's got a statue, as I think Mark is saying, outside Parliament, you know... And, He shut down Parliament and passed from when he wanted um, to raise taxes. He's the most anti-democratic person since Parliament burned down. They did that there as well. 
Yeah. Yeah. It, it, no, if he's going to be anywhere, there's no. He should not be have a statue outside Parliament. It's there's, just. There's, they turn his bust He has a bust, and they turn it round to face the wall inside the inside the Houses of Parliament. So he's actually in there, and they. Alex has done a lot of stuff on statues, and I'm, you know, a, a firm advocate of them staying up. But I cannot understand why there's a statue of Cromwell outside. Parliament. I do quite it's like that. I do quite like that on St. Margaret's Church opposite, you do have a bust of King Charles there who's fucking eyeballing him. He's just a bit (laughs) higher. Charles is like about two foot higher, so he's just looking down, which I quite like the the irony of that. A lot of of it's the legacy of Whig historians who justified their whole being by uh, lauding people like Cromwell and the glorious revolution that they called it. Yeah. Yeah, and the thing is, it's still hold sway in a way because um he is still 37th in our poll he was 10th in 2002 um, and we have i think without doubt proved that he was an utter shitbag and well, yet- I guess that he's just loosely connected with the idea of democracy whereas you know the reality is somewhat different he has the tiny penis of vindication. <laughs> he has the tiny penis. It's quite upsetting in uh, in military history that he crops up. He crops up more for his uh, reform of the uh, model army. Uh, it's yeah. quite disappointing because yeah. it is a credit. A, that was a game changer, but it was. It's like the only thing yeah. I can think of. Yeah, the the iron yeah. were pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. Marcus was going to do one with us. Thanks for that, Charlotte. Uh, Marcus was going to do one, but he's had a quadruple gin and he's too pissed to do anything properly <laughs> and not pissed enough to front up and do <laughs> Arthur Scargill just to wind people up. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so, should we do lies, Alex? Lies, lies. Uh, got the text proof. Right, shall we do the top three? Well, first of all, let's read out the 10 from 2002. So, at number 10 was. Oliver Cromwell. <laughs> that, shit. that guy is basically the reason I did all of this and have spent weeks doing this because I hate that he was in the top 10. And number nine was Horatio Nelson. Eight was John fucking Lennon. Seven was Elizabeth I. Just I can't even. Six was Isaac Newton. Five was William Shakespeare. Four was Charles Darwin. Three was Diana, Princess of Wales. But that was like six years after her death or five years after her death, wasn't it? And Johnny made that excellent point last week that you get a position bump in these polls if you die. Uh, <laughs> it actually it did happen. Vera Lynn got a sudden bump at the end of the voting. Yeah. Number two was Brunel and number one was Winston Churchill. And another, so we started this um, and then a week after we opened the voting and I got like a subscription to a poll thing and everything, it all erupted online about Churchill with people saying that he starved millions of Indians and stuff, which, anyway, there's a whole podcast on that. Go and listen to it. But let's see how the top 10 runs down this time. So we had 10, the unknown soldier who came up massively uh, number nine was the Queen, again, up massively. Um, and interesting as well, because she wasn't. She took a lot of shit after Diana's death, didn't she? Oh, Charlotte's holding up her notebook cover. The Queen is David Bowie. Uh, Alan Turing was number seven. Six was Joseph Lister. Five, William Shakespeare. Beth still crying. Four was Tolkien. At three, it's the Duke of Wellington. Happy with that. Yeah, he'd come from 
way down the list. He was fifteenth um, last time. Yeah, not in the top ten. I, yeah, three seems a, a good place. I'm, I think he's uh, he's done his dues. There's a lot of uh, people out there who've uh, championed him, so I'm, I'm pleased with that. He needs to be in the public eye far more than he is. Good work. Good work. Yeah, yeah. well done. You you really did raise his profile in the last few weeks as well, you and Zach uh, and many of your mates. Um, so that leaves us with, in alphabetical order, Winston Churchill <laughs> and Horatio Nelson, um, which is funny. I find it fucking hilarious. That after all of that shit, the vote still poured in for Winston Churchill. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of ex sailors out there on Twitter as well that I've uh, seen swaying the, the, the Nelson well. versus Wellington vote a few times for me in the past. There was only four votes in it in the end Ooh. between the what? two of them, so they are essentially level, but just edging out. Lord Nelson was Winston Churchill, who still comes in. the greatest britain of all time four votes in it in the end and for benefit of marcus there were only 60 votes in it between nelson and wellington i'll take that every day usually a lot bigger discrepancy yeah it was just under under andrew's policy if if you get shot you're a twat i just want to Put that in there. <laughs> Andrew, not mine, Andrews. <laughs> so yeah, after all of that and all of the chest beating and statue defacing and basically this whole thing being run in conjunction parallel to discussions about historical figures and how we perceive them and his statue being defaced, Winston Churchill has still the two of them romped away, if I'm honest. Well. So, three military leaders in our top three. That we are, we are, sim- we are a simple nation. Well, it just—I think it says a lot that um, politicians have nosedived on this. People, perhaps with now yucky connotations, um, people who had died a lot closer to two thousand and two, like Diana, have nosedived down the list. And actually. Although the top 10 really was dominated by white men and only had one woman in it, if you look at the top 30, it was packed with women. Um, and the top 30 to 40 was, was quite... There was uh, Florence Nightingale was in there, Elizabeth I, Eleanor of Aquitaine, um, Emmeline Pankhurst, Judy Dench, <laughs> uh, Margaret Thatcher, Queen Victoria, Mary Seacole... Um, yeah, so, and Ada Lovelace was at 43. So there were a lot of women that were overlooked, I think, last time, who were a lot more prominent this time as well. So, guys, thank you so much for all your efforts on behalf of that poll. What do you reckon? Is there anyone missing from the top ten who absolutely should be there? Me. Nee. <laughs> <laughs> uh, David Attenborough just keeps coming to mind. I agree with Lockie on Yeah. I feel he should be in the top ten. But... He just missed one of the cuts. I think it ended up being really close, and the unknown soldier, David Attenborough, and one other were all within a few votes of each other. But the unknown soldier, yeah. gets oh, you ten. just wait till he dies. Everyone will be crying, and all of a sudden he's the greatest Britain ever. They miss him. The unknown soldier, he can't die again. Sure, <laughs> uh, I mean personally, I yeah, personally, I'd love. William of Marshall to come somewhere within the top hundred, 
but I know a lot of people don't know enough about him. So it's funny, isn't it? That the medieval period, they they have to. They it looks like they had to already be really well known. Although Eleanor Rakuten, at one point, she was punching like in the top ten, mm. and then kind of fell away, um, which was good. I wonder if it's got something to do with perhaps where we're at at the moment and just the national feeling that that we're the top three of these sort of great military juggernaut men, sort of examples of everything it is to be British and all of this sort of thing. I wonder if, if perhaps that's why it's gone that way. Well, you mean maybe. the 1940ism, as they're calling it? Or the 1940s education, yeah. yeah. I've I've spent a lot of time at those events because I enjoy enjoy old movies and the vintage style and that kind of thing. And I've met with a lot of veterans and been to a lot of 1940s events and stuff like that. And there is always an element of that, that kind of, you know, this sort of what we like to call the plucky blitz spirit and stuff like that. And when, when things started getting rationed at the, the beginning of lockdown, um, someone actually said to me, oh, you must be really excited about this. This is like, this is what you enjoy. This is fun. It's quite um, rose-tinted was, specs. No. Yeah, yeah, very, very rose-tinted. I like to see invasion. a spitfire. I like to see a spitfire as day, much as the next person. Invasion, I don't want the more time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, don't you don't want to wrestle people for toilet paper either. Um, I think, you know, what's about. really interesting as well is... Um, there's a real theme in the top 10 of public service or people that are perceived of having been really selfless. So the unknown soldier, um, the queen, I would say as well, public service, her whole life, Wellington, not only a military leader, but a prime minister as well, Nelson and Churchill. They're people who devoted their entire adult lives sort of selflessly in a way aren't they i mean yeah there was doesn't mean we do get two politicians in the top three though yeah like that's but they're not known for that but they are in in like in well you know they're known for rabble rousing selflessness personally oh i wouldn't i he's part of that whole mid-victorian born to serve aristocracy like yeah don't get me wrong they they get they get the plaudits for it and they're hungry for the power but I mean, he he always knew he was going to end up in public service, always. But I, I'm slightly, you know, biased in terms of subjects, as are some others amongst this group. But, um, you know, I, I think that, and I think, Mark, as you hinted on it a minute ago as well, but I think the Second World War, we can look back on that. I think we, we don't remember that properly, really. You know, we, we just sort of... Our psyche is it was us against them for a lot of time, and that's not entirely true. And then, you know, my granddad always said, and my granddad wasn't in the Second World War, although he worked as an ALP on the top of Battersea Power Station fire watching because he was too old. But, uh, you know, he was far more affected by the First World War when his when he used to live in India and his brother left India and served with the Second Dorsets in Mesopotamia and died in the Siege of Kut. And he was far more affected by that. And his generation, he used to say to my dad, was far more affected by that from a British perspective because from a British and colonial perspective, we lost far more than we did in the Second World War. And I think that type of nuance gets lost in this type of debate with the whole Churchill thing. And also, if you remember at the end of the Second World War, people voted Churchill out. Many of the soldiers voted Churchill out very firmly and rightly. 
I, th- I think what's to add to what Andrew and Clive just said is as well that the First World War, we noticed this really horrific, bloody war, lots of people died, terrible conditions, so on and so forth. Loads of poetry. Uh, loads of poetry as well, yeah. But also, I donkeys think... Donkeys as well. Yeah, <laughs> Many donkeys. It's a mule. Don't, don't, don't forget the mules. <laughs> yeah, but don't also, like, up, it's the time in history. By the time... We've got to the First World War now. Many people know it as this really bloody war, etc., etc. And maybe in a few years' time, when all the veterans from the Second World War have sadly passed on, then people's views will start to change and show how even more bloody the Second World War was. Uh, will they, though? Because, because, you know, the Second World War was far more bloody than the First World War, if you look at the statistics. But because yes. we, are, we are semi-ignorant and we live in a... Churchill, Dunkirk, Churchill, possibly D-Day. Well, the key Calibre is it's still Calibre. living memory. Yeah, it it's still be. living memory. Just um, like the First World War was perceived as completely different when it was still in living memory. Um, yeah. And now, obviously, we look at it, and then it went through a phase of being perceived in a way that we all now think is stupid, like the lines led by donkeys thing. I mean, to be fair, we can only assess, you know, culturally we can only assess it from our own nation's experience. But at the same time, you have to look at how horrific it was for other countries. You know, I, I had a French girlfriend for, when I was at university for a while and her grandmother, who lived in Swasson, could remember being evicted from her house twice as a small girl in the First World War and then as a grown up in the Second World War. But it, it, it's things like that that we don't really have over here because we got away comparatively lightly i think the the fact that we were never actually invaded the fact that nothing ever happened on our soil i I mean bombing and otherwise the fact that we were never invaded i think actually plays an awful lot in terms of the experience of europeans against our experience ironically though that's also the feeling how we ended up in the second world war the germans the first world war ended not even on their territory which obviously led to a lot of thoughts and thoughts processes for them on how they lost the war and how they perceived politicians, etc. And you can sort of see similarities today. I mean, we've got politicians now that really big up the Second World War and Churchill and that 1940s education. I don't know. It's, believe it. But it's, you know, it, it, it's a generation on from the generation that actually fought in it now. And I, so, mm. so the generation who fought in it, my, I remember my granddad saying, um, you know, before he died, you know, we should be in the Euro. We should be part of it. We should be, you yeah. know, very much involved in this. And he hated the war. And he actually hated the Germans as well. Like, lovely, lovely guy. But he said to me as a kid, only good Germans are dead one. Like, and that's, you know, and this is someone who advocates <laughs> yeah. us being in the era. I think it's it, mainly it, the generation after it, that is the problem. Yeah, maybe. That, but... um, I think it's I mean, to be fair, I think culturally this country, we don't remember the first war correctly either as well. So, you know. True. True. It's interesting. We don't though. remember any war properly. We, we remember <laughs> our perspective. And, you know, when you had... Um, and you had J.D. Davis on the other week talking about all the, the Dutch wars that we had in the 17th century, which is you know something I'm really interested in. And we never talk about that naval history. We talk about um, Nelson. We talk about Wellington because we were winning. We don't talk about when the Dutch came over and pasted us a little bit, you know, because it's not... It doesn't yeah, and all the shipwrecks on Goodwin Sands. Yeah, when yeah, they had yeah. the best navy in Europe. Peter Pett, another historical twat, the guy who was meant to be looking after the fleet at Chatham and left it with a lovely little chain. And uh, 
yeah we lost it <laughs> i think it's interesting the top three rightly or wrongly this is that this is the standard to be in the top three are perceived as having saved britain at some point <laughs> wellington with waterloo nelson with trafalgar and churchill in world war Two, and they are the three that have come out on top it will be intriguing to see one day if um, if we've moved on as as supposedly you know now the the aim is for for us to be a center of, of science and excellence if someone is doing this in a hundred years time whether we've we've produced the requisite you know scientists biologists etc etc that, that that go some way to solving the, the issues that we're facing now as Artists, opposed to military figures anything yeah. that adds anything to the culture culture yeah you know it, culture I, I, it, it does it, it sort of slightly surprises me irrespective of what you think about john lennon the, the fact that the cultural figures seem to have dropped out yeah. which i find sort of slightly surprising but that that kind of you know it goes in fits and starts it, it's yeah, I mean, so 17th was Michael Crawford last time. Well, <laughs> I was going to say, the only reason Johnny raised that is he spent 12 quid voting for Crawford last time. <laughs> yeah. 17th this time was Freddie Mercury, who was the highest sort of, of the, the art. Artists actually didn't fare well at all in this. I it's think. kind of, yeah, the, 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 there's no Damien Hirst, there's no Banksy or, or anyone like that. I mean, you would sort there, of expect them just, to crop up. No one nominated Tracy Emin then. No, they did, but she's like not even in the top 300. Um, just looking down for the artists. Top artist was Turner at 76. Oh, boring. And then Banksy oh, was yeah. 86. Constable was 87. Yeah, see, when you get your constables and your, your classics and your Sir Thomas Lawrence and things, it's Christopher hard to Wren, say it's not proper art. Yeah, 122nd. Lowry was 124. Wren is shocking. <laughs> Higher, please. So oh, come where, on, I live in London. But it's second. But yes. it's it's also it's it's how much these people are actually in the public consciousness. Because if you're you're conducting a poll, and you have the fanatics like you know the Tolkien fans and all the rest of it, I you know I can't remember the last time I saw a TV program about Wren, for example. That's just you know that's one name picked out of out of the air. It's just that, you know. Andy was offered one a couple of weeks ago, but he was having none of it. <laughs> it's just you know how much how much people drop out of the kind of out of the the cultural picture, as it were, and they automatically sort of drop away. It's kind of if you look at you know those classic sort of top one hundred shows that Channel Four used to knock out on a regular basis. If you view one you know a top one hundred albums from nineteen ninety to two thousand and ten there's the things that hang around and there's the, there's the ephemeral stuff that will, would just have been popular that, you know, that year or over the course of two or three years, 10 years later, it's forgotten about. But do you not think though, that I think it's key that we're in the middle of a pandemic and that as such artists, sports, musicians, actors, people just didn't rate it as important on this poll. Who was the highest uh, sportsman or woman? Uh, Roger Bannister was the highest sporting figure, uh, and he was not high at all. Let me have a look. Which, to be fair, if you needed someone to take a sample from a testing centre and run it down to a lab, he would be your man. (laughs) 47 (laughs) he was. 47. 47. Yeah. So things like art, music... um, Fell no, away. no, no, Farrow and stuff like that is not featuring. Both Farrow's in the top hundred. Yeah, uh, it, it just. 
Well, I think people view it as trivial. Yeah, it, at the moment it's trivial, isn't it? Yeah, it, it just it just becomes it's irrelevant. But it, exactly, it's it's not. Me. It's so not. I mean, how the hell have we got through these last few weeks if not with, you know, watching something on Netflix, listening to music, listening to podcasts that people are producing because they yeah. just fucking love doing it mm. and. These people are valuable and they're important. And we have this horrible puritanical, that's what, what pisses me off more than anything. It feels puritanical to me when they say, oh, well, it's just the arts. You know, we don't need that. We need, mm. we need science and maths and sensible things. And of course you need that. But Jesus, where's the joy? Where's well, the Shakespeare? Well, I think where's I think the inspiration? Well? You don't... That as well, in, you know. I don't think I'm giving any secrets away that Johnny and I both work in the media, and if you look at the, how much the media contributes to the economy, mm. it's a phenomenal amount. But where do, where do scientists get the get the creative ideas from? You know, is it purely from reading science books? Fuck off! No, it's, <laughs> okay, it might be booze actually. Magic you know, fair, fair <laughs> one. I think part of it's down to <laughs> lack of education. People are really not educated enough on things like the arts and stuff at secondary school level. Well, it is it's a joke. Of curriculums, isn't it? Because they're saying that yeah. it's important. Dorman, what's your stat? Um, oh, it's the, the, that's um, the current state of the UK comedy scene. Seventy-seven percent of comedy clubs are set to close over the next twelve months. Um, yeah, and God, God knows how much of that one point what. Was it 1.5 billion amount of funding they're meant 1. to get? 1.57 oh, uh, billion. They're getting zero yeah. because comedy isn't considered an art. But at Maybe the same time, circus, two people who have had a very good lockdown are Marcus Rashford and Raheem Sterling. Mm. And they both yeah, really sure. come out of it well and impressed. Yeah, but that's only because they were correcting government stupidity. So They're not very funny either. It's not hard. Yeah, it's a it's a very it's a very good point actually in the sense that people view football as as trivial and you know nonsense and all of the arguments that were thrown about when, like any business, football was trying to restart. You know, it, it, the, the the brickbats had got thrown at football in particular oh why are they trying to do this well it's a it's a it's a business it's trying to restart like any other businesses mm -hmm. that's all it's trying to do whether you find it distasteful or not is is your problem yeah, well, what about yeah. all the other people that aren't playing staff that need their income back and need exactly yeah you know, it's staff yeah Chelsea is a massive employer with shop yeah. with the back of house with the marketing with the ticket in sales they're all and a, in there. A, ma a massive amount of whom are on you know 20 grand a year you know they yeah. you know they need their income they need um, things but most of them took a pay cut or went on furlough whereas most of the players not all but most of the players stood up at the beginning Chelsea actually paid everyone down to Chelsea. the stewards they paid mm. even the stewards got paid as if or the, so not the agency i don't know about the agency but the chelsea employed stewards got paid as if they had worked the last five home games and that. So I, I don't know about other clubs. I followed yeah. my... I, I don't think it was Villa did it a lot. The Villa did it before Chelsea. Yeah. Yeah. Baggies as well. My friend is a steward down at the Baggies. He's been... I'll just say that rugby is um, some way down the list in terms of restarting, unfortunately. Andy, well, why is rugby down the list? Is it yeah, what's the, the drum, or, or you just drink each other's piss in the clubhouse afterwards? <laughs>
Well, it's the robbing I'm glad you asked. Um, <laughs> they, they've done some work in the scrum, actually. The scrum's not so problem, not, not not the problem so much because everyone's facing downwards. The way that everyone sort of locks together in the scrum, if you do happen to cough when you're in there, it goes down. The most dangerous person um, as regards the scrum is actually the scrum half who stands to the side because if he coughs over the whole lot, that's the biggest threat of transmission. Mm. Now, as a second row forward, I've been firmly advocating the abolition of scrum halves for some time, <laughs> um, <laughs> of course. And I've, and I've tried to lay the boots to them at every opportunity I get. Um, so maybe that's the answer. We, we've been off everything besides the scrum and just have a manly contest. Every or even <laughs> each prop carries a, like a two square metre sheet of perspex on their arm. <laughs> I think you, well, in all seriousness, have you actually been given any kind of indications when you can start again? Or Well, I play social rugby, so it's going to be November time. We, we oh, think, right, okay. Yeah, I think, I think uh, the very top-level rugby could be September-ish. Um, my club first team is... Uh, maybe late September, possibly. Um, that's got to be that's got to be crippling, though, for financially, surely. Well, now now the bar can open at least. Um, <laughs> didn't, they, didn't they say earlier you can start? I, I I didn't know if rugby was involved in, but I know hockey was involved, and there was sort of there seemed to be a, a general announcement earlier on that they've fucking given up and gyms and everyone else can do what the fuck they want. So no, no, it's not. It's 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 only kind of very recently that they've said, or they've given an indication that gyms can open up quite soon. 25th Today. of July, I got an email from... My, my gym opens on the 27th. So. Yeah. Right, there we go. But it's, um, it, it is the contact. It's also the sharing of equipment and all, and all that sort of stuff mm. that makes rugby difficult. So, Is that the sharing of equipment in the bar afterwards? <laughs> <laughs> well... Or the bedroom. <laughs> you'll, have come, you'll, have, you'll have to All come showers. along to the club to find out about that I think. guys this constitutes the last of our weekly down the pub chats over the last three weeks uh, most of you have been in here multiple times um, you have all been excellent you've all given up so much time and put so much effort into your research every week coming in having a laugh um, and making this something enjoyable it remains one of the most popular things we do on History Hack we will absolutely do this again but now that actual pubs are open i feel leaving the house is high on everyone's priority list um, and getting sort of some sense of normality back but it's been brilliant so thank you to all of you and especially the judges who've been in iron every week well not johnny because sometimes he's got <laughs> middle class dinners to eat and adult in to do Holmes has been in here every week without fail um guys thank you so much all of you for all the effort you put into this down the pub segment i know people have really enjoyed it Brilliant, really Thanks good fun. Thank you, Alex. A lot of fun. It really has. Thank you so much. On behalf of all the listeners, it's been brilliant. It's been so uh, much I wish fun. You'd be, I wish we'd got you in sooner. You'll have to definitely <laughs> come back. I'll bring cake. It'll be great. Cake, awesome. Cake. Oh, God. And we need to try all these cocktails. I cannot wait for that when we all meet. I actually need to finish designing all of the cocktails. <laughs> self publish a recipe book. I found a, a Wellington's Victory co gin cocktail on Twitter last week. It's the best thing ever. What was it? Um, gin, mm. vanilla, and uh, apples. It had like a little hint to the history. It was quite good. Oh, sold. Yeah. Let's how get about how up. about the uh, tiny vindication cock tail? <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute! Hey, I've just realised we, we haven't voted on the biggest twat. 
Oh, we don't need to vote. It's Cromwell. Cromwell. <laughs> <laughs> Does anyone disagree that Cromwell is the biggest twat Britain has no, ever I'm seen? I'm going with Clive and Emily the Eighth. Yeah. <laughs> close mm. second, very, definitely. Very close. Too hard to pull. Absolutely. Cromwell had some redeeming features, whereas Emily the Eighth didn't. At least he wasn't a massive misogynist, so that's one... One point for Henry VIII on being a bigger knobber than Cromwell. So. Yeah. And also the fact that, isn't there, there's that medical theory that actually it might have been something wrong with Henry VIII that was the reason all the babies died and that he, he had no heir as he was going. But he still, had four, he still had four children. Yeah, yeah but there yeah. were a lot of the ones that didn't survive. and they yeah, but He did a lot of shagging. I mean, that's, that's a low hit rate. Yeah. But you think yeah, with all that shaggy, he might have lost a bit of weight. But you, you compare him to Charles II. <laughs> Charles, Charles, Charles II, Charles that's II. a swordsman. No, he's pretty prolific, eh? Like... Yeah. I reckon at least 14. And Prince William, when he is on the throne, will be the first of Charles II's blood to be sitting on the throne since Charles. Because of the Spencers. Because of the Spencers yeah. and uh, and also Barbara Villiers blood. So. God, it's not a rigged game at all, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Join us over the weekend. It's going to be a blinder. Tomorrow we have with us Jim Al Khalili. So this is my Spanish teacher, Mrs. Graham's dream guest. She begged me to go and grovel to him to come on, and he did, and it's brilliant. He's talking to us all about the golden age of Islamic slash Arabic science and what it achieved. Really fascinating. And then on Sunday, another listener request, we have with us Thomas Morris talking about all manner of medical weirdness. This was based on a book he did uh, called The Case of the Exploding Teeth and Other Medical Mysteries. So much rank, horrible stuff in there, but quite amusing in its own sick way. Pretty much a historical version of watching one of those A&E reality shows. So join us for that, because he was inspired by a massive scrotum. You'll have to tune in to find out more. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.